Welcome to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring Coast to Coast AM from January 24th, 1997. From the high desert and the great American Southwest, I bid you all good evening, good morning, as the case may be, across all these time zones, stretching from the beautiful Hawaiian and Tahitian Island chains, eastward all the way to the Caribbean and the U.S. Virgin Islands, south into South America, north to the pole and worldwide on the Internet. This is Coast to Coast AM, and I'm Art Bell. Good morning. Got a treat for you this morning. Dr. John Alexander is going to be my guest. He has been a leading advocate for the development of non-lethal weapons, non-lethal weapons, since he created renewed interest in that field beginning in 1989. His influence in the area has been so great that he publicly has been called the father of non-lethal weapons in several major publications. He entered the U.S. Army as a private in 1956 and rose through the ranks, retiring as a full colonel in 1988. During his varied career, he held many key positions in special operations, intelligence, and research and development. From 1966 through 69, he commanded Special Forces A-teams in Vietnam and Thailand. His last assignment uh, was as a, a Director, Advanced Systems Concepts Office, U.S. Army Lab Command. After retiring from the Army, Dr. Alexander joined Los Alamos National Laboratory, where he was instrumental in developing the concept of non-lethal defense. As a program manager, he conducted non-lethal warfare briefings at the highest levels of government, to heads of industry, and at academic institutions, including Harvard and MIT. Dr. Alexander organized and chaired the first two major conferences on non-lethal warfare and served as the U.S. delegate to three NATO studies on that topic. As a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Non-Lethal Warfare Study, he was instrumental in influencing a report that is credited with causing the Department of Defense to create a national non-lethal weapons policy in July of 1996. For several years, he's been a distinguished guest lecturer at the U.S. Air Force Air University and participated in key war games when non-lethal weapons were first being considered. Academically, he holds an M.A., Pepperdine University, Ph.D., Walden University, and later attended the Anderson School of Management at UCLA, the Sloan School at MIT, and the Kennedy School of Government General Officer Program, National and International Security for Senior Executives at Harvard. In addition to many military awards for valor and service, Aviation Week selected him as a 1993 Aerospace Laureate. He received a Department of Energy Award of Excellence in 1994 and is listed in Who's Who in America and Who's Who Worldwide. Dr. Alexander wrote the seminal articles on non-lethal warfare. He published articles in Jane's International Defense Review, the Boston Globe, and several other defense journals. 
Articles about him and his work can be found in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Newsweek, Sunday Times, London, Paranormal Italy, the L.A. Times, Wired Magazine, GQ, Scientific American, and Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and many others. He has appeared on international television in Denmark, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, the U.K., and the U.S. Currently, if all that is not enough, he's the Director for Scientific Liaison for a Private Research Institute, serves as a consultant to the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and writes independently. So, coming up in a few moments... Father Alexander. <laughs> well, all right. Now, to Father Alexander, actually Dr. John Alexander, who is, I believe, in Las Vegas. Is that correct, Doctor? That's correct. Um, wonderful to have you on the program. And I guess if you have to be known as the father of something, being known as the father of non-lethal weapons would be the way to go. Um, what in the world are non-lethal weapons? Well, in the broadest sense, they're obviously weapons that can be applied that don't kill people in the process. Okay. Uh, now, it runs on the simple end, uh, things you know about uh, rubber bullets and nets and things like that. Sure, that the police to, use. To a high end of uh, what we call strategic incapacitation, where you can bring down a nation or a complex target set such as that, uh, again, without uh, dropping hard bombs and killing people. You can bring down a nation without dropping hard bombs, smart or dumb, and killing people. An entire nation. I, I think you can certainly have impact on uh, complex targets such as that. Um, but, uh, you know, difficult to do. But right. uh, by attacking the infrastructure targets, uh, such as uh, communications, electronics, uh, electrical grids, transportation systems, uh, you have the ability to uh, really apply force in some unique ways. I noticed that the, um, uh, the little bit I read on you here, or quite a bit it really was, suggests that they are defensive non-lethal weapons. Wouldn't non-lethal weapons of the sort you're discussing, the latter sort, be really either defensive or offensive, depending on what you were trying to do? Oh, absolutely. We uh, can use uh, these weapons across the entire spectrum of force, uh, which means all the way up to strategic warfare. Um, by definition, the United States normally prefers to think of itself as being in a defensive role, even when you're using weapons offensively. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a, uh, a politically accurate statement or just a politically correct statement? Well, it, it, I think that the whole concept of national defense is in the process of changing, mm -hmm. and that uh, what we are going to go through is uh, a change from national defense, where we were talking about the actual survival uh, of uh, our country and others, uh, to a period of national security, which I think is something that's drastically uh, different, but I think it's the political realities of the future. Um, would a portion of the technology that you helped create 
be known as SDI? I'm sorry, I missed the last. Would it be known as what? Uh, would it be known, uh, could it otherwise be known as SDI? or part of the Strategic Defense Initiative? Oh, SDI? In, yeah. in general, no. Uh, I don't think there's anything that... Uh, in fact, um, in the early years, around 1990, 1991, as the concepts were first being developed, uh, one of the thoughts was something like a parallel initiative. It certainly did not seem like there was a uh, political will to create a new initiative. But I think the technologies in general would be very, very different. All right. Suppose we were to begin to get into a various, very serious situation with a country like Iran, and we wanted to, as best we could, disable them, um, disable their infrastructure without dropping bombs. How would we technically accomplish that? Yeah. Well, uh, first, let me say, I think you've hit on, on a very important point. Um, let me back up a little bit and get to it. But you remember, one of the problems we had with uh, Iraq is they did not believe that we were serious. Mm. Saddam, right up to the last minute, believed that the U.S. would back down because we were unwilling to accept casualties. And I think some of the systems that we have in a situation such as uh, any of those in, in the Middle East is you have the ability to send a very strong message that you have the will, the intent, and the capability uh, to use force, and you're going to do it. And, by the way, uh, one other caveat in all of these, I always maintain that you have to have a lethal backup. These systems do not operate in isolation. If you're going to be believable, you've got to have lethal force and have an overwhelming capability. Um, having said that, I'd prefer not to talk about specific countries, but uh, that gets into real political sensitivities, of course. But if you're going to go after a complex target, such as the one you described, um, uh, all of advanced uh, societies today rely heavily on both uh, electricity uh, and certain certainly uh, information systems, if you will. Yes. So I'm sure you, you've heard of uh, information warfare, the ideas of using uh, computer viruses to bring down uh, systems. You can create havoc uh, with them in this day and age. Perhaps you can uh, help me out here. I understand that during the, uh, the war with Iraq, prior to its fairly public knowledge, I believe, that prior to the, air, the first air assault, we somehow infected their air defense system uh, computers with a virus and totally uh, screwed it up. <laughs> Is there, uh, can you verify that? I, I do not have any information that would support that. I believe the, the way we took them out was the good old-fashioned way, uh, rockets. Okay. Uh, well, you remember that the, uh, the first strikes uh, going in there were with uh, stealth aircraft, and so right. one of the big problems that they had, of course, was uh, they literally couldn't see them. Uh, yeah, they were firing all over the place. It certainly is true, uh, firing blindly and not hitting much but an occasional bird, I suppose. Right. Um, so uh, we did that conventionally, and, and then, as far as you know, there is no truth to that rumor. No, I've, I've heard several rumors uh, about various kinds of computer attacks that were supposed to be done. There was another one that uh, their air defense missiles were supposedly had a uh, 
reverse switch in things they had bought from the French. But again, I've seen nothing hard that would substantiate that. All right, Doctor, when you first began presenting the, the concept or the idea of non-lethal warfare, you're talking to the guys who have practiced nothing but lethal warfare, breaking things and killing people. Uh, how well did they accept your, uh, your idea of um, uh, disabling the enemy without, uh, without killing? Well, in reality, quite mixed. And I think the mixture tended to be based on level of responsibility. If I talked to guys whose responsibility was to take the next hill and get there with all of their troops alive, right. they would say, I want more steel on target. Mm -hmm. You know, just blow the hell out of them. Right. If you talk to the very senior people, people who have responsibility for lives, who look at the long-term influence of application of force, uh, they were the ones that said, I really want alternatives. Um, I had talked to the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, just before we were going into uh, Somalia. And this was, you know, our first major humanitarian operation. Right. And he was saying, you know, the last thing I want to do is to go in and kill people uh, that were there to feed. Mm -hmm. uh, although that's exactly what we ended up doing. Right. Um if you if your technology or what you have developed could have been used in Somalia, would it have been great assistance? Somalia is not exactly an information rich or technologically rich nation. Would it have been applicable there? Oh, it was. Now there were really several distinct operations. Now, if you talk about uh, Provide Hope, which was the early operation, mm -hmm. uh, that's one uh, where I'm not particularly happy. Uh, we went in with a show of force with the assumption that uh, if our guys went in showing rifles and bayonets that the enemy would naturally cower in the presence of the omniscient uh, mm -hmm. Americans. Yes. And what we found was they backed off a little bit, went into a sniping mode, and uh, it became really a, a horrendous situation, enough so that we eventually pulled out. Now, we were replaced, as you will recall, with U.N. forces. Right. And then finally we had the extraction, and um, there was an operation called United Shield in which we reinserted Americans and covered the extraction of the U.N. forces. And that was the first time, to my knowledge, where we openly said we have uh, selected non-lethal weapons available. Uh, we took them in and on a limited uh, basis used them. Uh, I would say before that, by the way, they did use uh, OC or, you know, pepper spray sorts of things. But that's about what they had uh, during the early phases of uh, Provide Hope. I take it that the kind of non-lethal weapons that you work on uh, are generally beyond pepper spray and uh, uh, that sort of thing. You work on the more technological uh, type of non-lethal weapons, correct? Um, well, first of all, I've sort of become a, a coordinator uh, across the board, and the, the laboratories and industries around the country now work on a wide, wide variety mm -hmm. uh, of technologies. But some of them are really uh, quite simple. Um, there's a lot of work, for instance, going into uh, low-impact kinetic rounds. Uh, you see these in uh, uh, law enforcement uh, as well as in the military. And these are just things that will, you know, knock you on your butt uh, rather than uh, killing you. 
Rubber bullets, that kind of thing? Well, it's uh, many of them are rubber. There's other sub uh, substances, uh, sometimes wood. Uh, sometimes they have something called the rag or the rotating airfoil grenade, uh, which is a um, like cloth that are expanding, uh, but there's still sufficient impact. Uh, there are things, uh, tasers and now air taser that can be, you know, electrical shock to uh, uh, individuals. Um, <clears throat> the sticky foams that you're familiar with, which is sure. actually a, a fairly complex substance, so it's been around for a while, developed for something uh, quite different, um, all the way up to uh, information warfare, which we really felt spun off on its own and, and has taken on a life of, it, of its own independently. Uh, a lot of these things have psychological uh, implications uh, in uh, convincing people that they really don't want to do the kinds of ta or things that you're trying to stop them from doing, uh, rioting or attacking, uh, sniping, whatever that might be. Well, let's, let's consider the Iraq War since it is history. Um, what kinds of informational warfare did we use against the, uh, uh, the enemy soldiers, uh, said to number in the half million range, before the attacks really began? Well, in, uh, the, uh, in Desert Storm, Probably the biggest thing we did there was psychological uh, operations. Uh, and as we saw, they turned out to be extremely effective. If you remember the pictures of tens of thousands of people surrendering. I mean, even surrendering to drones and to oh, aid workers and anybody they could quit. I do. And uh, part of it uh, was intensive. Remember, they had fought a war for about eight years with Iran, and one of the things they had learned in that war uh, basically a ground war was if you stayed in your tank, you could survive. And uh, they were not prepared for our precision weapons and our uh, day-night uh, capability to find them and destroy the tanks. So very quickly we uh, got the, you know, they would found out tanks could be hit, so we'd drop leaflets on them and say, you know, we don't care about you, don't be in your tanks because we're going to uh, destroy them. Uh, another major uh, operation that was quite successful is to go in and they, again, simple things, dropping leaflets, and they went to a specific area and they said, do not be here tomorrow because the largest non-nuclear explosion that has ever occurred is going to occur at this site tomorrow. And then they dropped the biggest non-nuclear bomb that has ever been dropped. It was a huge explosion. We did? Oh, yes. It was a specially designed uh, device uh, built down at uh, Sandia. And then we went, and the next day we dropped leaflets uh, on either side and said, now you remember what happened in the middle? <laughs> now wait, um, I'm very, very curious, and I suppose there are going to be areas that you can't talk about, but uh, what did we drop? I'm sorry, what can what? What did we drop? <laughs> you said the largest non Nuclear explosion. Uh, what was it? Uh, was it? Oh, a... uh, it was a, uh, a special bomb that was built. Uh, I believe actually using they needed a big penetrating system. It was uh, taking a, uh, I believe it was a 105 tube, and filling it uh, with explosives. And uh, it was strictly a, a high explosive uh, type system that they just were able to put a lot of very compact high explosives in. All right. Um, we're, we're at the bottom of the hour, Doctor, so we're going to break here for a moment. When we come back, I want to ask him about that device versus a fuel-air explosive uh, device, which I had always heard was the next best thing to a nuke.
for killing. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 24th, Coast AM from January 24th, 1997. Welcome to the program, those of you who join at this hour. Anything is possible tonight, anything at all. Who knows? But then again, that's kind of the way I like it. Back now to Dr. John Alexander. And, Doctor, you were talking about a device dropped. Uh, in Iraq, I take it in the middle of a desert somewhere, the largest non-nuclear explosion uh, ever seen. Now, I had always heard the fuel-air explosive, or the mist that they drop, and then ignite, literally igniting or depriving the area of oxygen, was probably the worst thing short of a, a nuke. But you're saying they made something even worse. Well... I don't know if it's worse or better. I mean, that's a pejorative comment. Yeah. It was just a, it's a big bang. And, of course, the point was that by using the um, psychological operations, uh, we probably saved a lot of lives. We certainly had the uh, Iraqis uh, surrendering in droves. Oh, by the way, it, it dropped in Kuwait, not in uh, Iraq. In Kuwait. Yeah, it was on the southern border just before we began the uh, ground phase of Desert Storm. I see. Um Something I've always wondered about. We have um, one of the largest nuclear stashes in the world, if not the largest. Um, why do we not threaten to use nuclear weapons? You would think that in itself would be such a psychologically disabling threat mm -hmm. uh, as to just cause everybody to give up and say, no, thank you, that's it. Well... In, in my estimation, this is just a personal issue, we have created an artificial boundary, and that is one that says nuclear weapons are so special. They're out of bounds. That if you use them, you have crossed a very definite barrier, and that we will not do that except under the most exigent circumstances. Now, there are unconfirmed reports that one of the things that we told uh, Baghdad, either directly or indirectly, is mm -hmm. if they were to use biological weapons, uh, then, you know, the gloves were off. 
Uh, right. Again, I, I've not, never seen that um, uh, officially confirmed, but it's certainly one of the rampant rumors about why you did not see uh, the stockpiles that we know Saddam had being used. There are la later reports, by the way, that suggest um, that this um, Gulf War syndrome may be contagious. So there are some people who believe that biologicals, in fact, may have been used, and we didn't know it till later, till now. Yes. The, um, uh, Gulf War syndrome, of course, is, is making uh, the press, and uh, I think we've got an awful lot more to learn uh, about uh, what that is. I mean, it's certainly looking like whatever was causing it was a series of very complex things. Uh, everybody who's looked at it that I know has just not found one simple solution. Mm -hmm. And part of them may have been things that we induced uh, bringing them into the, uh, the troops uh, as counters to chemical and biological agents. Well, that's true. In other words, the inoculations they received, that sort of thing, sure, could be. Um, again, though, let us return to the original premise. Uh, any country, your choice, so it's non-political. If we wanted to disable their infrastructure, what kind of weapon could do that without killing? Well, of course, the, the whole series of information warfare, i.e. putting uh, viruses in uh, virtually every nation, even in the developing countries, uh, their economic systems, their transportation systems, air traffic control, communication systems are all run by computers. Oh, that's true. Uh, so uh, bringing them down, uh, it is true that you can harden systems, but you pay a tremendous price for that. And so it gets much like we did uh, with the Soviets. Uh, it's just too expensive to harden everything, so you can't uh, protect them. Um, uh, tremendous uh, amounts of pulse power uh, induced into electrical grids we know will burn out selected uh, electrical uh, equipment. Uh, you can short things out. Um, may, uh, may I stop you? Is there a way to induce a gigantic pulse, for example, into a nation's electrical system short of a... Um, um, uh, nuclear? A, a nuclear uh, detonation... Uh, <clears throat> Sure, and one of the things we have now, of course, is uh, with precision weapons, uh, you can fly very close to your target so that uh, electrical pulse can be produced um, you know, by standard explosives as, as well as by nuclear. It's just uh, more exaggerated in the nuclear one. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, we found out after uh, World War II as kind of an unexpected side effect. Uh, but you get a huge footprint. One of the problems <coughs> me, with um, uh, such systems is that you've got to be quite a ways away from them yourself. So you have this tremendous fratricide issue because That's That's your equipment point. can be uh, as subjected to the uh, pulse as is the uh, adversaries. Is there work being done uh, on, on the ability to produce a directed uh, a pulse of the kind we're talking about short of a nuclear explosion or a conventional iron bomb or smart bomb, you know, dropped on transformers. In other words, are we, are we close to beam weapons? Um, the whole field of, of directed energy has, in fact, been looked at for 
several decades. And Pulse Power is one of the systems in there. Of course, we have lasers and particle beams. Um, we have been able to get uh, power levels up. Uh, you can do some things in directionality. Um, it's uh, a fairly sophisticated and, and difficult task, however. Um, of the weapons, I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of how much you know that you can't talk about. So, uh, of the weapons that we're able to talk about, um, and, and considering your field of knowledge in its totality, what percentage can you not talk about? <laughs> um, well, I would say uh, less than 5%. Less than 5%. And, and mostly it's not the generic stuff. It's when you get into specific capabilities. But, in other uh, words, exactly. You know, most of the weapons are actually uh, fairly well known. All right. Um, I've heard, for example, that it is uh, they're working on a device, the, the police are, for the police in this country, to be able to... Uh, disable a speeding or fleeing vehicle mm -hmm. by somehow pulsing it with something that will simply shut its entire electrical system down. Boom. Right. How do they do that? Uh, with great difficulty. And I'm, I'm very skeptical of the people who say they can do that, and, and that comes from a lot of years of looking at that sort of problem. And, and the problem art is this. Um, electrical systems, even from one car to another, vary tremendously. Sure. And it also varies even more so if you start looking at diesel engines, uh, for instance. When we have tested various electronic equipment, we find tremendous variability uh, from one system, uh, from one identical piece in a system to an uh, identical piece in another system. In other words, the same pulse to the same type of equipment does not respond the same way every time. Uh, the other issue that you have is the one that I mentioned earlier, and that's fratricide. If I have a pulse that will wipe out the car that I'm chasing, it'll probably get mine and all of the other cars that are just coincidentally in the area. <laughs> Uh, I'm very skeptical of that. I keep hearing uh, tremendous claims, and, and I have yet to see it uh, work where where law enforcement agencies would be comfortable using it. I understand. I was, I was. It's too bad there's this fratricide problem. I was imagining its use on a on a tough and frustrating day on the L.A. freeways. <laughs> um. So all of this really is still very much in development, and. Uh, not necessarily uh, practical yet. I mean, you've described a weapon here that really, because of the problem that you would do it to yourself, it's not very practical That's correct. very difficult to use. On the other hand, if you could bring it in, bring the weapon in, and leave it like a time bomb so that it would go off and then get the hell out of the way, uh, then it might have some application. Or, as I was saying before, with, with uh, precision-guided systems, uh, you can now fly them in. Uh, if you get back to the nation-state kind of target, I mean, you can fly within a few meters of the target that you're trying to hit. If I have that kind of precision, then I can control the, the uh, collateral effects. Uh, doctor, you know, you talk about the information-rich societies, uh, societies that depend for their infrastructure on computers. I can't think of any 
that is more dependent than we are. So if we're, if we're uh, designing this technology, and if you look at the world in general, it seems to me we are one of the richest targets <laughs> for this kind of technology, maybe the richest in the world. Absolutely. So how vulnerable are we? Tremendously. And the, the problem that you run into here is a question of uh, how much security do you want uh, and how much of your civil rights are you willing to trade off to uh, obtain that? Mm -hmm. um, if I had a large weapon capable of pulsing, uh, even if it was pretty good size, if I could get it somewhere near the Pentagon or uh, an important computer record center, I could do some very, very serious damage that would, that would make the uh, conventional truck bomb look like a firecracker. Yeah, the targets you selected there happen, happen to be ones that tend to be very hardened uh, because they are aware of it if you go to the key target. But if I were to go, uh, as you know, here in Las Vegas, we have something, uh, you know, Bank America down here. Uh, your, uh, all of financial transactions, for instance, tend to be, uh, that are not through the federal government per se, are really vulnerable. All the telecommunications systems, again, that, that don't belong to the government, you know, the backup systems that are, are there for national emergencies, uh, all of the commercial ones, uh, they're the ones that are vulnerable, and they handle the bulk of the uh, information load in the country. What about Wall Street? Uh, well, you re did you read Debt of Honor? I uh, know. Uh, Tom Clancy's book, uh, and, and that's based on the premise that a, uh, a virus, uh, in that case a Trojan horse, was left on Wall Street and time to, uh, to collapse it. Um, certainly would be very, very serious. We had those problems, you know, during the uh, bombing uh, in the uh, Trade Center. Uh, they actually took out the, uh, not the New York Stock Exchange, but uh, one of the major international exchanges was there, and it was, went down for hours. It which really interrupted, inter interrupted things not only then, but it developed a lack of confidence uh, in our ability to protect the system. Let me tell you, Doctor, it took me off the air. Um, the audio feed uh, that goes from here to Oregon and then back to the East Coast uh, was routed through there, and we were off the air for quite some number of hours uh, before they got everything rerouted. So right. it affected a very great deal of communications. Yeah, most people think we just knocked down a building and shook up a, you know, a few hundred people, and that's not the case at all. It, it had the potential, uh, or it had serious effects much larger than are generally known, and had the potential to be even larger than that. We were quite lucky in many ways. Do you think that the uh, communications uh, was one of the targets, in other words, that they understood what they would disrupt with that bomb, short of bringing the World Trade Center down? No, my, my estimation is that this was strictly a political gesture and that uh, the real damage was, was purely secondary. It was designed to demonstrate, and it certainly did effectively, uh, that terrorism was no longer something that happened over there. Uh, it was something that did happen in the United States. 
do you expect us to suffer more at the hands of the terrorists uh, in, in the next number of years? In my estimation, yes. Uh, I think uh, terrorism is going to be a very cost-effective way if, if you're an adversary. I think that uh, Desert Storm was tremendously effective, but it also sent a message around the world uh, that if you want to, uh, to test us, you don't do it head-to-head. Um, do you have any information on how far uh, Saddam has come since the war with regard to rebuilding, restructuring, lessons learned, and what he might have in mind? Well, the latter, <laughs> I don't think anybody knows what he has in mind. Um, and uh, I only see the same reports that you do that he has certainly rebuilt uh, his um, conventional forces to a degree uh, more than we had anticipated that he would be able to in that period of time, and of course the constant reports that he hid uh, certainly chemical and biological capabilities and may be in fact continuing to do so. He's, he's certainly not played by the rules that were laid down to him. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm, I'm going to ask you to put yourself in a very difficult uh, position, but it might be in, an interesting exercise, or maybe you should not do it, I don't know, but if you were on the other side and you were wanting to attack this country with some massive non-lethal technology that would do great harm, what would you do and where would you attack? Um, or you can refuse to answer that. <laughs> yeah, that's one. Uh, <laughs> I think I know enough about the systems and the vulnerability that I'd like I would choose uh, the opponents to figure that out for themselves. I see. I don't blame you. All right. Uh, this is a very sensitive subject because the things we're talking about, you want specifics on them, but you can't exactly uh, give them. Uh, what is the what is the latest uh, that you can tell us that we're working on um, that we could use short of the iron bombs and the lots of uh, steel on target, as you were talking about? Well, the technologies that are being worked on are, are really on a, a very wide scale. Um, and I think that one of the things you need to look at is uh, what's the oper kind of operations are we going to be involved in? Because the things we've been discussing here primarily address uh, mid- to high-intensity war. Sure. And that cannot be neglected. Uh, having said that, uh, the whole area of peace support operations... Uh, which range from peacekeeping, peacemaking, humanitarian operations, um, you can argue uh, whether or not we should be involved. And certainly those arguments go on uh, inside the military. And my position on that is that we have been involved in uh, peace support operations, we are involved in peace support operations, and we will be. What that means is that there are a wide range of such operations for which we just need to be able to control people at the same time protecting our forces. Uh, situations like Somalia, uh, like Haiti, like Bosnia, um, and others that are going to emerge. And so simple kinds of things. Uh, we overlook, for instance, the uh, situation in which I have a friendly crowd, and friendly crowds can hurt you. Uh, I have friends who were in Haiti. 
mm-hmm. after uh, the uphold democracy and the troops are on the ground. And one of the big problems with dumping trash, uh, you see the videotapes of here are people that are so destitute that they will swarm over and fight uh, voraciously for the ability to pick through our trash. And so what happened is you needed a way for the troops to dump the trash and get out of there before that happened. Uh, you certainly didn't want to shoot people whose uh, no. only offense was to try to get to your trash before somebody else did. So what do you do? Um, well, this is one where you can use uh, a wide range of things, rubber bullets if you have to apply force. Uh, there's a, a host of low-level uh, electrical systems, as you see in law enforcement uh, agencies. Uh, in some cases, uh, sound is being developed where you can create uh, uh, sonic uh, barriers uh, that can uh, then be removed. Um, others include simple things like uh, smells, goo guns, um, and a, a system that was used uh, in uh, Somalia successfully was a laser. But I would, it, it, that might be something we want to talk about next hour because I think it will be a, a bit of a discussion. I, I am very, very interested in lasers, and I'm also very interested in whether they have application from space uh, yet, or whether you think they will, or whether our atmosphere will so diffuse the power of a laser as to make it useless uh, from orbit. That's a point of fascination for me, so we will talk about that when we come back. All right, Doctor, stand by. My guest is generally known as the father of non-lethal weapons. How's that for a title? He is Dr. John Alexander. He's in Las Vegas, not far from where I am, here in the high desert. I'm Art Bell. You're listening to Art Bell, somewhere in time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from January 24th, 1997. Presents Art Bell Somewhere in Time. Tonight's program originally aired January 24th, 1997. My guest is Dr. John Alexander. He's generally known as the father of non lethal weapons in the world, in the West, which means the world, because we lead the world in this kind of technology. And in a moment, we are going to discuss lasers. I guess I better get this on the air from Hawaii. Art for your many, many fans in Hawaii. 
and I've had a lot of faxes. KHVH has gone off the air in Honolulu in the middle of your program for the past two nights. They're going to do it again tonight. I suspect smart Bell fans have been surrounding the station with burning torches, threatening to torch it. Well, tonight, the station read a statement apologizing for cutting off your program, begging our indulgence. They explained they're having transmitter adjustments to make. With your many years in radio, could you please explain to your Hawaii fans why it is necessary to shut the whole station down for three nights in a row to work on the transmitter? I have refrained from making a nasty call myself, but I'm sure the poor folks at KGH have gotten an awful earful. Aloha. Yeah, sure I can. Uh, look, radio stations are complex electronic mechanisms that include transmitters and links and microwave and all the rest of it. And occasionally it is necessary to do electronic maintenance lest there be a failure. Uh, sometimes that will require several days in a row of shutting off in the middle of the night. Sometimes they replace transmitters. Sometimes they clean them out. Sometimes they do antenna work. Indulge them, uh, because that is what keeps it on the air the rest of the time. <laughs> so... Um, Douse your torches, folks, and uh, thank them for carrying the program. And please indulge them with uh, respect to the, uh, uh, the electronic work they've got to do. And do not call them and make nasty calls. They're doing this so that in the end, it will be more dependable. <laughs> Take it easy there in Hawaii. Back now to Dr. John Alexander considered to be the father the father of non-lethal weapons, I guess, in the world. And, uh, Doctor, we were about to talk about lasers. And I am particularly interested in lasers. I've got a little bitty one uh, that I got from one of my sponsors, Seagrain Company, and my cats love it. You know, I just, uh, it, it's a little dot that races around the room, and the cats chase it thinking, it's, you know, it's a little red bug. I suspect there may be more to lasers than amusing cats. Uh, well, there are. Uh, but actually, the little red dot uh, turns out to be very effective. But lasers, of course, are a very, very broad topic um, and have brought conferences on whether or not we should have lasers on the battlefield. There are those who would ban them altogether. Uh, which I think is ridiculous, but nonetheless, you do have uh, people who would take that position. Um, the fear, of course, is that lasers are going to be used as blinding systems. Ah. And one of the things I always say that uh, eyeballs and testicles are emotional issues. We don't listen to a lot of facts when we talk about them. That's right. And so the idea that uh, you might have uh, systems that blind uh, is uh, quite a bit of concern. And the answer is there are lasers that could be put on the battlefield that uh, uh, could blind. Now, we also know that lasers are used in our uh, ranging systems. Remember from, uh, again, Desert Storm, how we were able to hit the tanks with that accuracy had to do with laser rangefinders that could tell us exactly where they were. Also, you have uh, precision-guided systems, and sometimes that guidance is a laser spot. 
so I just do not see the uh, potential for taking them off the battlefield. I do not see them equally being used as a system to cause mass blindness. I think that would be patently illegal, and such systems would be determined uh, to be illegal under uh, all of the treaties and conventions that we have. Why, why would that be? That just doesn't make sense to me. If you could blind an enemy, effectively taking him out, requiring assistance from somebody who still has their eyesight, you've taken two people off the battlefield, and you have not killed... So why is that inhumane compared to uh, dropping a 2,000-pound uh, bomb and blowing people into little bitty pieces? Yeah. Well, I think the whole you know, ethics of war issue is an, is an oxymoron. Uh, however, there are a set of rules that we have agreed to, and one of those rules is no blinding systems. No blinding systems. For instance, um, well, you can't maim. Uh, some people don't know it, but you know the M16 rifle that we brought in during the Vietnam era. Yes. Uh, before that, we had the Colt, the AR-15, and initially, the bullet that was fired from that was barely stable. And the point was that as it would go through the air, it would start to tumble. Right. And uh, it was banned. They had to come up with a higher power one uh, that had more stability because the tumbling system uh, would probably not kill you but it would cause excessive damage. It would tear limbs off and whatnot. So that would be considered maiming. Uh, I mean, the whole set of rules, you know, Boy. I can uh, stick you but uh, and I can burn you if I intend to kill you. I just can't do it if I intend to hurt you. Well, who set up these rules <laughs> as a matter of interest? <laughs> I mean, where do they come from? Oh, well, we've had uh, conferences... Uh, and uh, treaties have been set up by uh, all of the Western nations. Uh, Red Cross is deeply involved. Of course, now the UN, uh, before that, the earlier organizations. And we have a whole series of things called the laws of land warfare that have been uh, agreed to. Uh, many of them came out after World War One, of course, the, uh, the whole issue on uh, uh, chemical weapons uh, because of the abhorrence of what we saw from uh, mustard gas that we used in trench warfare then. Uh, you know, we have the problem now that, and, and this occurred in Waco, of course, where there are agents that you can use uh, against our own civilian populations that cannot be used in war. Yes. Yes, that's true. Um, back to lasers for a moment. There were reports substantial reports uh, toward the end of the Cold War of several of our pilots and or co-pilots uh, being blinded by lasers in aircraft. Are you aware of those uh, reports? Oh, yes. And uh, as you remember, just a little over a year ago, we had that happen right here in Las Vegas. The reason we don't have the laser light shows anymore. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I was not aware of that. What happened? Oh, uh, you remember the the lasers that were on the uh, downtown hotels that were flashing around the sky? Oh, yes. I believe it was a Southwest pilot that got hit in the eye and uh, took him out of commission for like three weeks before he could fly. Oh, boy. And it, uh, it was while he was on the approach to the airport, and I think it was uh, December 95 that the order went out to... Uh, uh, stop the hotels here from uh, flashing them about. Mm -hmm. I refuse to believe that our military is not, uh, if it is an effective weapon, working really hard on 
laser technology to blind the other guy's pilots? Um, well, let me address that, because there are things that can be done with lasers with uh, that are eye-safe. In other words, rather than working on blinding the pilot, per se, against the eyeballs, uh, you can take a uh, continuous wave laser, uh, use it against the cockpit, and as you know, inside the cockpit there really are little tiny fractures. So as the light hit, it diffracts, uh, meaning the pilot cannot see outside. Now, I haven't damaged his eyeballs or not, but these are uh, bright enough, and, and we did this when I was at Los Alamos, uh, that you can, you're familiar with the heads-up display or the HUD. Sure. Uh, you can take that away because of so much illumination on the outside. So if a pilot were trying to attack a target, uh, they just couldn't see it uh, very well. It's a, a very good uh, method for uh, uh, warning. Uh, it's one of the things that one of the NATO studies I was involved in was non-lethal means for uh, working on uh, non-cooperative aircraft. Basically, how do you enforce a no-fly zone? <laughs> yes. And it turns out there's a lot of reasons to transit a no-fly zone. I uh, won't go into all of those sorts of things. Most of them are economic. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have a situation where a pilot's flying through there, one of the things you want to do is warn them. And uh, this was a technology that we said would be very effective. You put the spot on there, and the pilot would know without a doubt that they have been uh, taken a uh, under surveillance, and if they continue, uh, they'll probably get a rocket up the tailpipe. It, it would have been a good alternative, uh, if you remember what happened with Vincennes, uh, with the Airbus incident. Of course. That would have been an alternative uh, prior to uh, the rocket. Right. Um, do you have any thoughts on uh, TWA Flight 800? Uh, everybody is at a complete uh, standstill with regard to any real cause of what brought that airplane down. There have been a lot of suggestions, and that's really all they are. Uh, there have been some pretty wild ones as well. Have you looked at that at all? Uh, no. My, uh, I have a guess there, but it's no better than anybody else's. Uh, I come down on the side of a very unfortunate accident. Uh, do you buy the conventional explanation they're leaning toward the uh, uh, the heated uh, uh, air conditioning uh, units uh, causing some I'm sort not of... sure what specific unit but my guess is that you you, you talked before about fuel air uh, that's basically what you're talking about is a fuel air explosion mm -hmm. uh, set off by something but again I, I like to get into any detail because I do not have any more knowledge than uh, all right. And probably less than many of the people listening. All right. Uh, lasers, again lasers. Um, I understand that it would be possible to uh, pulse a laser from space, a satellite, uh, to build up a, a pulse. And, and uh, would it be possible to use a laser with any effectiveness or micro, microwave uh, radiation with any effectiveness from space to Earth? I think the best uh, bet on, uh, for space-based systems or even high-altitude uh, systems are things like missile defense. And the idea is not to try and burn holes through the atmosphere. What you were alluding to before is exactly right. Uh, atmosphere uh, causes big problems. The, the lower you get, uh, the more power it takes, the more uh, potential it is to uh, dissipate the energy. 
Uh, however, if you're firing laterally, say against uh, ICBMs that are being launched, uh, it's probably going to be effective in, in those areas. Um, there was a model that was done looking at airborne lasers, you know, the Airborne Laser Lab uh, that the Air Force now has. Yes. But looking down, and you've got to control for something like 29 different variables. And uh, things like the amount of, at or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, moisture in the atmosphere, wind, uh, temperature gradients. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Uh, so to use them effectively, uh, I think the problem is if you attempt to do it, then your power requirements go up, and then you've got to have, you know, huge power sources. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, again, I think the way you use them uh, on high-altitude platforms is uh, laterally. Laterally. Uh, so a laser fired through space, not having to traverse the atmosphere or very much of it, could conceivably blow a hole right through an ICBM? Oh, they've done that, yeah. I, I've also seen it done, and I forget whether it was at Los Alamos or White Sands or somewhere or another, they actually showed on television a, a demonstration of a missile blown up in mid-flight in the atmosphere from the ground. Um, again, you can do this... Um the less air you have, the better. We estimated that at ground level. I used to work uh, in one of my jobs, in the chief of advanced systems concept. I had all of the directed energy systems that the Army was working on at the time from a technology perspective. And we looked at lasers. We always wanted uh, a laser weapon as an air defense system. I mean, that was going to be the ideal deep magazine. You could sure. drill on planes and move it about quickly and whatnot. And it turns out that at about three kilometers, uh, the amount of energy that is needed to push any further is a, starts rising almost exponentially. Mm. And it just got to where you couldn't do it if you're operating anywhere near sea level. Uh, higher altitudes, uh, you can get a, a little bit farther. That's, that's why an airborne system where you're above most of Earth's atmosphere does make sense. What doesn't make sense to me is... You tell me we can use lasers in space uh, and make lateral shots at uh, uh, ICBMs. It might be, for example, in, in a boost uh, phase and, uh, and bring them down. And we are not do doing that, or at least publicly we're, we're not doing it. Oh, I think we are. Oh, we are. Yeah, the uh, uh, Airborne Laser Lab, uh, which has been on and, and off, um, should I put this? Uh, I, the guy who ran SDI, or it became Ballistic Missile Defense, was my boss at one point. Uh -huh. And uh, he was uh, eventually a lieutenant general with a Ph.D. in uh, laser physics um, and did not have a lot of faith. He preferred much more the hit-to-kill uh, mechanism, in other words, a, a kinetic system right. uh, where I actually hit the device and bring it down, that they have... Uh, uh, greater confidence uh, in it. And I think it's a good bit of it's just a confidence issue. Well, it is true, isn't it, that um, a kinetic weapon, in other words, something that would approximate a shotgun shell uh, extraordinaire, fired at something, would it would only take a little tiny thing the size of a BB right. kinetically to hit this thing and disable it and blow it up. 
That's correct. So that is a cheap way to uh, to stop uh, something of that sort. Uh, the issue with all directed energy systems is that we have spent decades and tens to hundreds of millions of dollars in developing them. Uh, they were promoted with very, very high promise, uh, and the promise has not been fulfilled. Uh, they, there have been advances, but they have never met the uh, spectacular performance that the uh, early advocates were promising. Mm -hmm. um, have we come very far with biological weapons? You talk about sound. What can we do uh, to somebody with the right frequency and the right sound and the right decibel level? Can we disable human beings? Well, uh, the whole uh, infrasound issue is one that's uh, pretty interesting. There are now acoustic weapons that are, are being developed or have been developed uh, that are fairly effective, um, and it's just a matter of hitting you with the, it, it's a frequency issue, a lot of waves. Uh, you turn it off, and the person's uh, fine. Um, uh, well, let's, uh, I'll tell you what. When we get back, let's just get right down to cases and find out what you can do to a person. My guest is the father of non-lethal weapons, Dr. John Alexander. Interesting stuff. I'm Art Bell. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 24th, 1997. Somewhere in Time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from January 24th, 1997. Once again, here I am. Dr. John Alexander is my guest, and we'll get back to him in a moment. One of the new features on our worldwide web page is a bulletin board. Oh boy, is it a big bulletin board with any number of topics all relating to what we talk about on the air. I suggest you go take a look at www.artbell.com. We have many photographs up there as well. All right, uh, back now to Dr. Alexander. Uh, and, Doctor, a lot of people are beginning to uh, fax in questions now. Uh, so uh, let me ask you this. Do you know anything? Of, what, what is a maser, Doctor? Uh, apparently something use, using microwave uh, energy instead of a laser energy. Uh, yes, I, I really don't know a lot about it. There are, you know, uh, a whole bunch of uh, things in directed energy that 
you know, various types of, of energy, and that, that just happens to be one of them. Okay. I, I'm not terribly familiar with those particular systems. All right. Um, I've also got an article here uh, entitled uh, Physics and Weapons uh, in Bang Bang, You're Alive, it's, it's titled. And um, it talks about various uh, weapons of the sort uh, that you're talking about. One of them, uh, my, as a matter of fact, this is, <laughs> I'm sitting here looking at an article by you, uh, as a matter of fact. Um, what I want to ask you about is remote viewing. Uh, and I guess that's what you wrote about here, or that sort of technology. Uh, do you believe it has a use? Do you believe it is real? Uh, the Ed Dames uh, type of remote viewing. Ed Dames, of course, was a uh, military remote viewer. What do you know about that? <laughs> uh, quite a bit. Uh, uh, quite a different topic from where we are. I want to discuss it a bit, of course. Um, I know Ed uh, very well. Um, remote viewing is obviously the ability to uh, obtain data at a distance. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes it works very well. Uh, from my perspective, there are some serious signal-to-noise problems. By that I mean sometimes you can get uh, excellent signal. Uh, other times you get things that most viewers believe are accurate, and they turned out not to be uh, terribly accurate. But the, the biggest issue is sometimes it works, and sometimes it works quite well. Um, other times it doesn't work very well at all. Um, are you familiar with the work of Ed Dames specifically? You said you know him. I, I know SciTech, and uh, I know a number of the uh, uh, claims that he's made. Uh, I, I tend to be uh, more, much more conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were in charge of a military non-lethal weapons division, would that be part of your setup? No. Now, the reason I say that is that, uh, not because of any belief of uh, how effective it is, mm -hmm. uh, I think that the uh, remote viewing is a, an appropriate intelligence uh, gathering tool. I do think that, um, as we haven't discussed in non-lethal weapons, they have tremendous uh, implications uh, for intelligence, uh, both before and after. Um, but I do think it's a, a viable tool that should be used uh, in conjunction uh, with other tools. I think one of the big problems that the military had is that uh, remote viewing units were used as a court of last resort, uh, if there were just no other way to get uh, the information they needed, and then they wanted to know who, what, when, why, where. And no other system they had would give them that, so you would not expect a fledgling system such as remote viewing uh, to provide those kind of data. Mm -hmm. All right, let's uh, come back to where we were before the break. And now, I was about to ask you, biologically, um, uh, take the... Um, Take the situation at Waco, for example. Okay. Uh, what could be done to those people biologically? What can you achieve biologically from a distance with sound or any other technology? Is there a way to disable people at a distance, literally driving them 
Well, I don't know. Yeah. You tell me. Well, I, I think the uh, conspiracy theorists uh, will not be terribly happy with a lot of my answers. But the, but the real answer is when you're looking at trying to affect people at a distance, right. it is extremely difficult. We have looked for the Holy Grail for I don't know how long, and that would be some kind of system that could induce an instantaneous catatonic state. Right. I say that as opposed to just relaxing them. Are you familiar with the dead man switch? You know, where uh, the terrorist holds a hand grenade with a pin pole, so if he relaxes, uh, it still goes off. Sure. Um, the problem with trying to incapacitate people quickly is that if you do it, uh, say, chemically, which has certainly been looked at uh, quite a bit, either through darts or um, gas or, or whatever, there is too much variability in uh, human makeup. Most of these things operate based on body weight and health condition. Mm -hmm. So a substance that would stop a, uh, uh, say, a 200-pound man that's in good uh, condition uh, would easily kill a, a lot of other people. That's a good point. Most of the time, the military and law enforcement, they want a system that is absolutely reliable. They want to know that if they put a dart in somebody, they may be willing to use that, they want to know it'll stop them. They don't want somebody to get back up and uh, shoot at them. Mm -hmm. The problem in law enforcement is that uh, they run into a lot of people who are chemically altered. Uh, things like uh, angel dust, where uh, anything that induces pain or even it's hard to short out the nervous system. Um, so the idea of physically incapacitating people, and particularly quickly, is... Uh, extremely difficult, certainly been looked at for a long time, but I know of no system uh, that meets those requirements. Um, what effect can you have on people with sound? Uh, can you annoy them? Can make <laughs> a, irritate them? Uh, what can you do? Yeah, but that's not terribly effective. Uh, as we saw in Waco, uh, when they did that, uh, what we found out was that Koresh uh, had a better speaker system and uh, they just turned their music up and uh, kept the HRT up uh, late at night. Um, so I, I think the idea, remember we tried that with Noriega as well during uh, right. Just Cause. That's he was right. trapped in the nuncio and uh, played uh, rock music, which certainly irritated a lot of people, but that was certainly not the force that brought him out of the building. Uh, what we're talking about now in acoustic weapons, though, are systems that... Um, will actually vibrate you to the point where people can uh, collapse. Uh, now, really? the issue is that they'd be able to get back up or, out of their own volition, uh, leave the area. So it's not a loud noise. Uh, there's too many countermeasures. Uh, the quickest one, of course, is just put your fingers in your ears. So, you know, in a way, as I listen to a lot of this, non-lethal many times seems to equate to non-effective. Is that unfair? I Yeah, I think so. Uh, however, you've touched on, I think, an area that is um, one of the major ones that, that must be addressed, and that is how do you measure effectiveness? Um, we understand hard bombs and bullets pretty well. We sure. understand a, a burning hole uh, out in the desert. Um, we don't understand 
the tank isn't moving, does that mean it's really dead? Mm -hmm. uh, can these things uh, come back to life? Uh, there are many non-lethal weapons that are really quite effective. Uh, on the low end, uh, the kinds of anti-personnel things, we know how to deal with them and, and how to measure it pretty well. When you get into the anti-material systems, the larger ones, um, very difficult if I want to measure how much information is moving, how much electricity is available, how much fuel is available, what the quality is of it, and, and those sorts of things. Um, well, we've talked about a number of uh, weapons, and uh, a lot of them, lasers, not effective through the atmosphere, uh, sound effective, but you can hold your ears. Um, and, and so, in a lot of ways, they don't seem effective. Psychological weapons, yes, uh, effective, I suppose, prior to something that... But, but then again, you've got to have the backup and be prepared to use the real weapons if you're really going to mix it up. So, what would you classify, if you were to lay out the most effective non-lethal weapons that you could use, what would they be? I think they run a wide range. Now, let me address lasers again. We, we left that one a little early, and I'd right. like to give you an example of what was done in uh, Somalia. Okay. Yeah, one of the major problems we had there were snipers, and what would happen is the snipers would be surrounded by willing hostages, uh, namely uh, women and children. Mm -hmm. And uh, up until that time, our response was just to shoot everybody. I mean, we bring in helicopters with many guns, and, and uh, we killed lots and lots of folks. I recall that. Uh, one of the things that was done with a laser uh, out of uh, uh, Kirtland uh, Air Force Base was being able to bring in a, uh, a laser spot, uh, and it's much like what you've seen in the movie. You talked about the red dot before, having the cat around. Remember in the movies where you have the prison riots and the, the red dot goes on the guy's chest, and they go, oh, you mean me? Yeah. Uh, same thing was uh, used in um, uh, Somalia. Again, this was at, at the time when we were handing the uh, exfiltration. Uh, a story that's told by Lieutenant Ireland, who had the system there. Uh, they had a, a green laser, and they were shining it, and they spotted a mortar crew uh, a couple of kilometers away, and they were setting up inside a building, and they put the laser spot through there, and uh, they had four people come over to the window with their hands up trying to surrender to it. Well, it's a very very effective attention-getting uh, uh, thing to do. That's right. If you see a red dot on your chest, uh, it has deep meaning. And uh, so you're saying that even in a crowd where you might have shields being used, which is much the case in the kind of warfare we seem to be conducting, you can single out the person you really want and say, stop that. They had several, they were able to stop the sniping just by putting a spot out there, and they had several cases where they spotted the person with the rifle, you put the laser on him, and again, these are eye-safe lasers, they do no physical damage to him, but the idea that this person has been, uh, you know, pointed out, and they obviously know there are lethal backups, uh, was sufficient to uh, stop them. Um there are many systems that uh, are really uh, quite effective. I think the law enforcement uh, agencies around the country, uh, I've used, uh, I've had the SWAT team uh, here in uh, Las Vegas actually use for a demonstration one of the uh, uh, television programs that, that you mentioned. Uh, and this, these are 
you're on the street suddenly bumps into somebody. But we have a hostage barricade situation. Uh, as you know, we have those periodically. Somebody's irate and sure. uh, threatening their neighbors sure. uh, and going in, and uh, they shoot them uh, with wooden bullets. The alternative, of course, is to shoot them with real bullets. And they said usually the next day after they've calmed down, they come in and, and thank them for being alive. Mm -hmm. uh, what does a wooden bullet do to you when it hits you? I'm sorry, uh, I'm, you're getting a little weaker. I'm All right, my question was, what does a wooden bullet do to you when it hits you? It uh, gives you a big bruise. It, uh, it's just a, a matter of, uh, it's a uh, fired from a device like a grenade launcher, uh, a standard grenade launcher, and it's uh, about a 40 millimeter, some of them are in the uh, 38 to 40 millimeter wooden round. And it's just a, a, a tremendous thud. I've got a picture taken in uh, uh, the uh, let's of San Jose Mercury, where you can see the individual getting hit. He's chasing the police officers with an axe, and as he gets hit, I mean, it literally rocks him back, so his heels are uh, off the ground. <laughs> so it, it packs uh, quite a thud, and you you definitely uh, have a bruise the next morning. Uh, but most likely not be dead. And you'll probably think you were killed. Um, here's a question for you, Doctor. Uh, please ask Dr. Alexander about any involvement or knowledge he may have about the MK Ultra Project uh, Monarch. Do you know anything about that? Um, only what I've read. That's old CIA stuff, so I'm certainly not related. Uh, that's the uh, hallucinogens. Research. Yes, yes. Um, do you know what results uh, were realized from that project? Do you have any idea? Uh, giving people LSD, that sort of thing. Uh, Again, I've, I've read a good bit uh, of the literature from it. Uh, I'll tell you one thing, and, and again, I think um, like the conspiracy theorists will not like this answer. Uh, but having been in the, the agency and talking to senior people, um, one of the lessons or things that they learned from that is uh, not something that they would want to touch. Uh, in my estimation, in talking to people uh, who either were involved or, or close to such operations, uh, they believe that the political mood of such, is, or of the country and, and the uh, Certainly, leaders on the hill. If anybody participates in that, is playing. You bet your agency. You bet your agency. <laughs> yeah. And and I, I would also say, remember, talking about big uh, big organizations, you still find individuals, and I find usually it is the younger people who didn't live through that era who come in and say, well, wouldn't it be great if we had uh, some kind of mystical agent, uh, you know, magic dust or something like that that we could sprinkle over and incapacitate people. And uh, But the people who lived through it, and I've been counseled by some pretty senior folks there, said uh, not, not, not something they would undertake. They think the repercussions from Congress would be swift and severe. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a long time, uh, Doctor, since we've been in a really serious war. Now, I'm not saying Desert Storm was not serious. It certainly was. But um, it turned out the enemy did not have the ability to resist as we thought they might. 
In other words, they collapsed uh, rather easily. Um, if we get into another serious war, uh, let us say trouble on the uh, Korean Peninsula comes to mind, something along, uh, you know, at that level. Um, how long do you think these non-lethal devices would be used before uh, the real people in power, the generals, said, forget that? Well, I, yeah, the answer to that is not at all. Uh, I don't think that's a situ uh, situation in which you would use non-lethal under any circumstances. And in the policy uh, that was signed by the uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, one of the things that's made clear is even if we have non-lethal weapons, we reserve the right uh, to use lethal weapons first. It doesn't mean that we will necessarily... Uh, have a gradiated response. My point is that I believe that the nature of conflict has basically changed. I believe there are still bad actors. Saddam is out there. Iran is a, a danger. North Korea is a danger. Uh, there are others in the world who could be a major conventional threat. And for them, you need an absolutely highly lethal, highly mobile force. Having said that, we also have these emerging threats, uh, many of whom don't have an address, and, and therein is where you really have a problem. If you're fighting a standard army, rule one is we win, and, but we know how to do that. You might get hurt in the process, but we're going to win. Mm -hmm. But we have a whole host of emerging threats, and I'll give you an example, something like the Kali cartel. If you say drug cartels uh, are a threat to national uh, interest, how do you respond to that? And I think our response so far has been not very effective. But you can't go bomb the Kali cartel. They're resident inside the sovereign state of Colombia. Uh, they have a, an agricultural system, a manufacturing and distribution system that runs through many, many countries. And we've got to remember part of them are, are us. So to try and bring force against adversaries such as these uh, is going to be difficult. Organized crime in the future, if not already today, is beyond the capability of law enforcement agencies to deal with it. Uh, and I think, uh, well, I've got memos from the, the Bureau and the CIA and, and others who have met up. This is a trillion-dollar economy, bigger than most of the countries in the world. Uh, how do you bring force against uh, you know, such entities uh, in the future? You can't line them up and use bombs and tanks. So then we get to your kind of warfare. I, I think we're going to be um, uh, forced into it. I think it provides options. I want to emphasize, it's not a panacea. I understand. Don't right? suggest that. It provides us options in situations wherein... Classical hard bombs, tanks, uh, aircraft carriers. Doctor, hold on. Uh, we're at the top of the hour. We'll be right back.
you Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 24th, 1997. And my guest is Dr. John Alexander, and we're about to go to the phones. If you have questions regarding non-lethal weapons, he has been called the father of non-lethal weapons, uh, probably in the world. Uh, Dr. Alexander organized and chaired the first two major conferences on non-lethal warfare, served as a U.S. delegate to three NATO studies on the topic, is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations Non-Lethal Warfare Study, and has a resume as long as several arms. Academically, an M.A. from Pepperdine University, Ph.D., uh, Walden University, and later attended the Anderson School of Management at UCLA, the Sloan School at MIT, the Kennedy School of Government, General Officer Program, National and International Security for Senior Executives at Harvard, and on and on and on. And we'll get back to him in a moment. Here we go. Once again, Dr. John Alexander, the subject, non-lethal weapons, weapons you can use that will disable or accomplish a goal for you, including at the national level with regard to infrastructure and all the rest of it, but not kill. It is an interesting topic, and uh, here once again is Dr. Alexander. Doctor, we've got a lot of people who would like to ask you questions. Are you up for that? Okay, let's have Adam. All right, let's do it then. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. John Alexander. Hi. Hi, this is John from San Clemente. Um, yes, I'm looking at a photograph of you holding up a bent fork in your right hand. Um, whatever happened to the psychokinetic experiments, um, are they realistic? Do they work at a great distance? Um I don't know what you're looking at. Uh, obviously, a different topic. Uh, basically, uh, well, if you really want a complete record of the uh, program, uh, including maybe where you have that picture, uh, a guy by the name of Jim Schnabel has just written a book called uh, Remote Viewers. Uh, it's in uh, paperback. has just come out within the week uh, and really tells the entire history of both remote viewing and the uh, psychokinetic work, uh, which pretty much has dissipated. All right. Uh, doctor, um, you were holding a bent fork in that photograph. I'm not familiar with the photograph. Who bent that fork, and how was it done? Um, <laughs> okay, we're going to make the turn. Uh, the, um, the particular one that uh, I'm pretty sure this uh, comes from, I I've seen this happen on a number of occasions, and in... Uh, Days past, I was. Uh, this was when I was with the Military Intelligence and Security Command, and we were having a uh, session of uh, senior officers, uh, colonels and above, for the most part. Um, and my boss, who was a major general, would get them all together about uh, three or four times a year, and we they would talk about real-world problems. And one of the things we did was to have a PK session, PK for uh, psychokinesis. Uh, this was a naive group, and in this particular one, an individual was uh, holding in his hand, uh, as were a lot of other people, and there was kind of a commotion. He turned his head, and it dropped a full 90 degrees. Uh, I did not see that happen. Uh, however, I had a, uh, I don't know if you know what a GS-18 uh, 
grade level is, so they don't even exist anymore. But uh, one of the super grade science uh, advisor uh, saw it happen. Uh, the man himself did not see it. And so they pointed it out, and then with uh, the colonels and generals looking on, uh, now the fork, remember, is being held strictly at the base. There is no physical force being applied, and it came up to uh, straight up, went back down to 90 degrees and came partway back up to uh, where it stopped, uh, which is in the picture. Wow. The individual, uh, uh, to show you how enthused he was, he put it down and said, I wish that hadn't happened. <laughs> and um, <laughs> uh, fortunately, we were sequestered and were able to kind of put him back together before he went home. Uh, it learned afterwards that he tried it again uh, on his own and was able to do it uh, once more and then said, that's enough. Want to stress, uh, I had a quick talk with uh, Penn Gillette here uh, this week who decided not to talk anymore. Uh, you know him, a Penn and Teller, who are real naysayers, of course. The individuals involved are strictly naive. Uh, they had they didn't even know they were coming to do, you know, that they would be involved in these sorts of things, had no expectation of it happening, uh, certainly no trickery uh, involved. Uh, contrary to popular statements, we have had magicians. Uh, I had Doug Henning over at the house, and uh, other magicians have, have looked at it. Um, happens. It's like remote viewing. It works sometimes. Uh, but the fact that it works at all, even sometimes, has got to be a source of intense fascination for those who would turn it into or wish to turn it into some kind of weapon. Uh, the, the answer to that is not really. It's uh, fairly mixed. Uh, there's still a substantial number of people who said uh, it can't be, therefore it isn't. Um, I have told this story to people who look at me and just say, crap, you know, you're lying. And say, well, that's one possibility. Uh, however, as I said, in this case, we had about 30 highly qualified uh, observers, and it wasn't a demonstration for people. It happened to uh, one of them. Um, there is, of course, the giggle factor. That's real. Mm -hmm. There are, um, you know, the things that happened with uh, particular General Stubblebine uh, over it certainly led people who were tacitly supportive uh, to uh, stay out of the line of fire. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame them. Uh, first time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. John Alexander. Hi. Good morning, Art. Good morning, Dr. Alexander. Uh, I've got a couple things I'd like to say. One, it needs to be addressed to you, Art, dealing with Dr. Alexander. But, uh, Art, you've got some varmints on your line you need to get taken care of. I've been trying to call you for about four weeks on both the west, Co west of the Rockies line, your Watts line, and else. About every 14 rings, you've got this uh, robot female that comes on the line and says, uh, you know. Sir, everybody, everybody suffers the yeah, same. Yeah, you need to get that off your line. But now, Dr. Alexander, for you, you when at the top of the program, you were talking about. Uh, they were they were experimenting with this device to disable a motor vehicle. Right. Okay. Um, now this is this is getting a little far fetched, but I've seen a flying saucer too in my lifetime. I'm 47 years old, but uh, one phenomenon that is associated very greatly with uh, flying saucers is car failures. The electrical goes dead. 
Now, everybody is theorizing that uh, most likely this is being caused by some sort of a high-intensity magnetic field being generated by the ship's propulsion system, etc., etc. Uh, would this be some, you know, if the technology was developed, would this be possible to uh, have this put aboard a police car without disabling a police car's engine also and you know, crippling everybody on the highway for about a half a mile around, you know, like some sort of a... a close proximity high intensity disruptor beam or something well uh, in the ufo literature uh, of course stopping engines is a, a common uh, topic uh one difference between uh, using uh, electrical pulse systems that uh, we were talking about and uh, what you hear with the ufos is the engines come back on uh this engines that are stopped with electric uh, electrical pulse power don't come out because the reason they stop is that you have uh, burned out uh, one of the components of the engine. Ah. In other words, uh, for example, the electronic ignition systems, uh, you've burned out something in that or something right. something more severe? Right. This, it does, I don't care which part, but something that you, you have actually burned up the system uh, and it's not going to start again ever. You're going to have to go in and uh, replace that uh, part. Um, it's also the reason that they're leery about using it on the public in general because you may have some significant auto repair bills. <laughs> Doctor, were you aware there is a regulation that allows with 30 days' notice for the United States to experiment biologically or chemically, on civilian populations. With 30 days' notice to local authorities, that can be done. Uh, that, I, I have never heard of that, and mm -hmm. uh, I'd have to see that. Okay, I'll and arrange that for you. I, I, would, I would like that. Um, if you get back to even when we were doing uh, simple things like remote viewing and psychokinesis, uh, work. We always had what was called a, a, a human use uh, board. Mm -hmm. uh, now we're all aware of um, certain misapplications that have been done in, in testing in the past, uh, but uh, my experience was that these boards were terribly conservative and you really had to uh, demonstrate uh, to both uh, technically sophisticated people and lay people uh, what you were going to do, and that anybody who was involved understood the risks. Uh, that's why I'd be really surprised if you were going to do it on any uh, large-scale population. Well, let's say we wanted to understand the implications of uh, exposure to plutonium on pregnant women. This conservative panel that you talked about at some point must have okayed that because they did it. Um. No, no, we're getting a bit far afield from things that I, you know, the, yeah, I understand. My personal experience has has always been uh, that uh, boards and things have tended to be conservative. Uh, having said that, I acknowledge. I mean, you'd be naive if you didn't say there have been abuses. All right, Wildcard Line. We're on the air with you're on the air actually with Dr. John Alexander in Las Vegas. Hello. Good morning, Dr. Alexander and Art. Hi. Will in Monroe, Louisiana. Yes, sir. Uh, quick, quick recap on you talking about lasers and things like that. I think the main problem with that is one uh, still is cost, packaging, 
and then, of course, you would need a large platform, and then the reliability factor and, of course, the countermeasures. But what, what I kind of leading into some of the other is, what are the possibilities of, of some sort of electronic system that could induce temporary sickness, uh, change weather patterns, or create you know headaches, disorientations, things like that, mm-hmm. i.e. HARP program? All right. Uh, HARP. Uh, doctor, is there any way that you know of that the weather can be controlled? Um, I think there are some things, and I'm getting a little bit far afield again. Um, uh, I don't know, have you ever heard of uh, Trevor Constable? No, I'm sorry, I haven't. Okay, sir. now the reason I brought that up, uh, and this gets into, this is back to the esoteric side, if you will, and um, not directly, directly at HARP, but um, uh, there's a concept of orgone energy, and I have seen certainly some videotapes, and uh, Trevor James Constable, I think, now lives out in Hawaii, used to be in Long Beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did some very, very interesting work, both anchoring uh, storms and moving them uh, around. Really? To be involved in weather modification, uh, there are international treaties uh, that get to be extremely uh, difficult uh, because, uh, as you know, if, if I cause rain to fall in one place, that means it's not going to fall someplace else. You're not really making rain. We're only discussing where the particip- uh, particip- precipitation is going to occur. Oh, yes. um, and so, in general, we've said we will not screw uh, with the weather patterns because the, the implications, of course, are horrendous. Um, I have only tangential knowledge of HARP, uh, but to the best of my knowledge, that's for something that's really quite different. Um, do you see any? Do you see HARP as benign, or do you see potential problems with it, or where do you come in on the HARP question? Uh, again, it's not one that I follow closely. Uh, I believe we're looking at uh, uh, communications issues and, and some other uh, technical things, as opposed to. I certainly do not see it as a weather modification issue. Mm-hmm. But there may be, there it, it may be technically possible to manipulate uh, the weather. You don't think HARP is necessarily doing that, but there may be other ways to. I think there are uh, there um, uh, fairly embryonic uh, in our understanding uh, of them, but I, I have seen sufficient evidence to say. Uh, an area that's fairly promising. Again, one of the reasons that most, uh, you know, companies or agencies won't get involved is that the uh, treaty requirements. Uh, if you're just going to do simple things like cloud seeding, for instance, uh, for instance, you've got to go to NOAA and uh, file uh, what your intentions are and that. Uh, uh, it, it's still a very interesting field. Well. Um... A lot of us suspect that it may be going on, and uh, we want to know who's screwing with the Northwest. <laughs> That's a joke. East of the Rockies, you're on the air, sort of, with Dr. John Alexander. Hi. Good morning, Art. Good morning, Doctor. Yeah, speaking as a... Uh, my name's James, first of all, from Kansas City, Kansas. Oh, all right. Okay, uh, speaking as a uh, United States Air Force veteran, and a veteran of Vietnam, voluntary, by the way, um, I have... A, and someone who believes in national sovereignty of the United States of America... 
I have a question directly uh, that doesn't relate to these weapons, but to the doctor on his affiliation with the Council on Foreign Relations, whose stated objective, published objective, is to eliminate the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights. How can you possibly, with your affiliation with the military and your oaths you've taken, uh, to defend, preserve, protect, defend the Constitution, how could you possibly belong to an organization which publicly brags about the fact that it wants to move us toward a one-world government and wants to eliminate the Constitution and the Bill of Rights? All right. Let the, this was inevitable. Um, <laughs> so you are a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. What? Uh... Well, no, I was on that study. Um, I, I think that most people have no idea what the Council on Foreign Relations is, and most of this stuff comes under absolute nonsense um, you will find as we did on the council uh, the study that I was involved in people of many many different uh, opinions uh, they are certainly not a uh, monolithic organization that has any particular area uh, they have fierce internal debates getting uh, getting our report out the door um, after the study group had met and even deciding, you know, what they wanted to say in general, uh, took another eight months just of back and forth getting uh, things uh, approved. Uh, I, I just kind of reject. I, I have little uh, time for all the tremendous conspiracy theories. They can come up with more conspiracies than anybody could possibly answer. I, I'll, I'll tell you, Art, maybe after the, if you bring this up, I know we're going to go to break here in just a second. Right. Uh, it is something, though, I think that has strategic importance. All right. Uh, well, then we will talk about it. Uh, good. All right. My guest is Dr. John Alexander, generally known as the father of non-lethal weapons, and yes, associated with the Council on Foreign Relations Non-Lethal Warfare Study. So we'll talk a little bit about that. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 24th, 1997. Somewhere in time. Tonight's program originally aired January 24th, 1997. My guest is Dr. John Alexander, 
generally uh, known as the father of non-lethal weapons, non-lethal weapons, and we'll get back to him shortly. Back now to Dr. Alexander, and we'll continue here through the top of the hour and then go to open lines. Uh, Dr. The Council on Foreign Relations, um, what would you um, describe their general goals to be, as opposed to what everybody thinks they may be? It's um, obviously a group of um, highly credentialed, well-thought-out uh, people who look at issues of uh, what the, our foreign relations should be with uh, other uh, nations in the world. Um, they are made up of people of many persuasions, as Republicans and Democrats and conservatives and liberals, and uh, uh, I certainly did not see any, any indication of... Uh, one mindset or any goal or anything that was uh, anti-American in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, so then their goal is not to eliminate the Constitution of the United States. No. Uh, no. Um, a lot of people uh, think that is, uh, is it one world uh, government or one world domination? I, I find that... Now, let me go to what I think is, is a fundamental problem here. And, and this will probably generate a lively discussion, and you can guide me as to how lively you're prepared to take it. But uh, uh, the answer to that question is a simple no. Uh, I think what we're seeing in uh, the various uh, conspiracy theories uh, in general, uh, and the reason I say it's a strategic problem, because it does impact at that level, mm -hmm. is a fundamental uh, fault in our in the American educational system, we just fail to teach people how to think. Uh, tell them a lot about what to think, but how you know to go in and critically analyze uh, complex problems. Uh, we know, you know, compared to education in Europe, for instance, uh, where you have to learn about the rest of the world, uh, we are so egocentric. Uh, that we just think the world should uh, revolve around us. You mean it doesn't? <laughs> uh, we think so. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was at Command General Staff College, my table mate was uh, from Pakistan, uh -huh. uh, a brilliant guy. Uh, but one of his uh, complaints was, you know, he said, I, I watched the three uh, uh, network news broadcasts, and all they do is they say the same thing. Uh, over and over. If I want to find out anything about what's going on in my entire area of the world that en encompasses at least 40% of the population of the world, he said, I do not get it anywhere on American news. You know, we worried about the United States, a little bit about Europe, and maybe Japan. Uh, we've watched that over and over again in Central and South America. Uh, it's something we worry about when we have nothing better to do, but even our closest neighbors are not something that we worry very much about. That's quite true. Uh, we know very little, for example, about Mexico, and we may have cause to want to know a lot about Mexico. I, I think we do. 
I think that is something Americans would do a lot better uh, to know about, uh, certainly Mexico, uh, as well as uh, everything that's going on around it. Mm -hmm. We just refuse to take the time uh, to do that. Um, what is that? Where is that going to lead uh, for us? That um, uh, egocentric uh, uh, attitude on our part, which I agree with you, we certainly have. I've done a great deal of travel, and that'll that'll pull it out of you quickly. Uh, but should this continue, uh, what will it eventually lead to? Well, I, I think it tends to lead towards a uh, sense of isolationism, and, and we see that uh, continually. Um, another piece of this is our very short-term focus, mm -hmm. uh, be it in business, economics, in government. We expect immediate fixes to short-term problems. Um, and I, I think the... the problems of the world today are terribly complex. I don't think we understand yet the implications of the population uh, explosion. Uh, I don't think we understand what is happening in the world as far as uh, social structures. We are watching already the devolution of many nation states, such as uh, uh, former Soviet Union, uh, former Yugoslavia. Uh, you see these happening in uh, Africa. Uh, just all over the world, you see organizations breaking up. And in my estimation, what you're going to see in the future are social structures that align a long belief system as opposed to geography. And I don't think uh, we understand the impact of other people's belief systems uh, nearly uh, well enough. Well... I've had occasion to do some interesting travel in the last few years. Uh, I went into communist China, up into Canton, some other areas. And I think the American people, if they really realized economically what was going on in China right now, scared the hell out of them. They don't have the slightest idea of the scale um, of economic activity that's gearing up in China right now. No idea at all. 28% yeah, growth rate year before last. Yeah, that's right. I was also a doctor in Moscow and did some travel in Russia, St. Petersburg, elsewhere. And what I found uh, was not what I expected. I expected great change. And what I saw was change at the margins yep. uh, economically, but politically, they are a total basket case. Right. And they are a basket case with nuclear devices that they... Uh, they're, they're not very well in control of, frankly. That's correct. And when I talked before about the potential for, you know, conventional threats uh, that are out there, a, uh, a rearmed uh, Russia or subset of the former Soviet Union is not out of the question. And uh, with the political instability and the health problems of Mr. Yeltsin and those who might follow, it's... Uh, it's got to be pretty sobering. All right, a lot of people still on the line to talk to you. Uh, first time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Alexander. Hello. Hi, Art. Yes, sir. Where are you? I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. All right. Um, this time last year, I was in the United States Army, uh, stationed in Haiti with Operation Uphold Democracy. Oh. Um, I was a shotgunner at that time, and we used the uh, non-lethal ammunition. But the biggest problem I saw with it was the fact that there were plenty of times when we could have used it. Um, devices such as the flashbang, which is just a 
uh, crowd control device. It, it doesn't even uh, actually affect any one person. But uh, it seemed that our chain of command was unwilling to let us use these. And with the graduated response system, it seems like that by the time that we could have actually used any of these ammunitions that it had been more time for uh, for lethal ammunitions and that it might actually do more harm than good. All right. Uh, it's a good point, uh, Doctor. He says that they had them, but the chain of command was reluctant to use them. Uh, is that uh, a problem with non-lethal uh, weapons? Oh, well, he's pointing to, I think, what's one of the uh, critical issues. Uh, having the weapons and, and having effective ones are only a small part of the uh, puzzle. You've got to have uh, doctrine, like how are you going to use them, and then you've also got to go and uh, have a training program wherein uh, people uh, are trained on the programs. I've had I had calls from uh, Sink Lamp, uh, literally the week before they left, saying, "What kind of weapons uh, can you give us?" Mm -hmm. And uh, he's obviously come in uh, a little bit later. Well, the answer is nothing. When you know when you're about to embark on a, a potential invasion, that is not the time to be introducing new weapons systems. Uh, another issue that's involved, I think this is a chain of command issue, is a matter of confidence. We understand bullets. We've been using bullets for centuries, so we understand the effects, and we understand it very, very well. Uh, the weapons that we're talking about now are not as well understood, and so there's going to be a learning curve uh, wherein the, the chain of command, starting with a grunt, and, and they're probably some of the most important people, uh, is that they have confidence that if they use a particular weapon, such as... Uh, uh, bullets or flashbangs or whatever, it's going to work and what kind of effects it's going to be. That also gets back to being a training issue. Well, that, that's where I was going. So it's got to be introduced at the training level, not when we're about to have an invasion. Right. All right, that makes sense. And the policy level that says, how are you going to use it? Uh, so then you've got a lot of people to talk into a lot of things <laughs> before it's really going to be uh, uh, come into uh, general use. Well, I think it's emerging. Uh, the general that ran uh, that uh, the whole operation is uh, General Jack Sheehan, a uh, four-star uh, major uh, marine uh, general, uh, really far, uh, far-sighted. And, uh, in fact, at my last uh, conference, he was the keynote speaker. And he's just been involved in enough of these operations and says we have absolutely got to have these alternatives. And, again, we're talking alternatives. We're not talking either or. Uh, but the kinds of operations, such as uphold democracy, uh, demand that we have systems other than lethal. You want something between shoot and don't shoot. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go out on the fringe with you a little bit here, Doctor, for a second. Um, Operation Blue Book that investigated UFOs many, many years ago <laughs> concluded that UFOs were no threat to national security. Yep. End of story. Um, do you think that conclusion was a practically correct or politically correct, um, and is it still true today? Okay, we're going to change focus. All right, um... I believe that that answer was, in fact, the correct answer, and I think that's been borne out. No threat. Now, you've got to remember where we were at that time. Um, we were still in Vietnam. Uh, we were worried about...
about the Russian bear. Right. And, you know, in the military, there's a saying that an action passed is an action handled. Hmm. Um, I think the Air Force didn't want to deal with it. You know, they had too much on their plate, and anything that gets uh, one item off, and, and these would have been basically nuisance. Uh, I know the UFO community doesn't like that. They like to think they're the center of the universe and uh, that this is of utmost importance. Uh, my experience with uh, most of the military is you'll find many, many people who are believers, supporters, uh, people who had experiences, but when you get to an institutional level, say, okay, I'm going to make trade-offs, like I'm going to commit resources, and I have it's a zero-sum game, um, it just doesn't. Cut the, cut the muster as something that's viewed as terribly important to national security. And that's why I think, uh, well, that was actually Condon report, is what you're referring to as opposed to Blue Book. Mm -hmm. And the Condon report said no threat. They said right. I interviewed um, a military officer who was in a um, uh, missile silo uh, uh, control center underground, uh, in which a UFO appeared and activated, or more accurately, I'm sorry, deactivated several of our uh, intercontinental uh, capable ballistic missiles. Have you heard of that report? Are uh, you talking about the uh, Northern Tier sightings? I, I am. Yeah. Well, of course, there were a whole series of sightings uh, across the uh, area. Um, one of the things about the Condon report that I find absolutely fascinating is that the recommendations and conclusions are not supported by the body of the text. If you read the body of the text, you will you would come out with an answer that says UFOs are real yeah. and they've been going on. Yeah. However, Condon himself did not get involved in the study. He decided a priori before the study ever started, uh, this was nonsense and he was going to get it over. So he wrote it without reading the text. Um, I have run into not only that case, uh, but I know you're familiar with Bentwater's case. I am. Um, we're in some things happened that uh, you know I certainly would have perceived quite differently um, and would have viewed as potential threat. It's my notion that by and large the giggle factor is so high, and I talked to uh, Colonel Halt uh, on this, and he sort of confirmed it that um, raising the issue uh, to higher headquarters would not be considered career-enhancing. Career-enhancing, yes. So uh, you, you better sit there and be quiet and hope that nothing bad happens uh, than to uh, say, boy, something really strange just happened here. <laughs> All right. Wild Card Line, you're on the air with uh, Dr. Alexander. Good morning. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. Hi. Um your conversation a few minutes ago, very interesting. I'm a public school teacher, so I have to disagree a little bit with your ugly American concept. But I was calling uh, about the remote viewing. Every time I hear this uh, discussed, and you seem to be the expert here, I'm not really sure what we're talking about, but uh, the, the uh, word naturals comes up. Do you know what those are? Sure. Sure. Uh, go ahead, Doctor. Um, well... Uh, two types of things. A natural remote viewer, um, a guy like Joe McMonagall, who had come into the program, uh, who had experiences and just uh, it, it's, it indicates somebody uh, whom, with whom you don't have to start with basic training and teaching them uh, how to do it. 
then you could take uh, somebody who is not a natural uh, and teach them how to uh, acquire these skills. Uh, so the natural is somebody who just does it on their own. Uh, there's quite a controversy inside the, the community as to whether naturals or uh, trained uh, people were better. Um, and uh, I'll let that argument rage. <laughs> Doctor, do you feel qualified? Now, I'm going to have Ed Danes on. He's going to be coming on, as a matter of fact, on the 30th. says he's got a big announcement. Right. But uh, a lot of audience I have out there is new not familiar with the concept of remote viewing at all, and they will call me up and ask me, what is remote viewing? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a long, hard explanation. Do you know of any simple way to tell people what remote viewing is? Well, in its most simple form, remote viewing is collecting data at a distance, and uh, you can consider that both in time and space. Um, a, a quick word is telepathy. It's not really, it's not quite right, um, but it's uh, the ability to go out and view, if you will, a, an incident at a given time and place and report back uh, information about that. But uh, with mixed results. In other words, uh, at times it has been uh, eerily accurate, at other times uh, not at all. That's correct, and, and I think that's one of the big issues. Uh, as I said, I know Ed. Uh, I guess this is one of the areas we part a bit. Uh, I'm much more conservative on how I would accept uh, the data. Uh, I think that, uh, and, and this again is, I think, is one of the downfalls in the intelligence aspect was the lack of corroboration. Looking at other sorts of uh, evidentiary material and seeing if it makes sense. And quite frankly, frankly, some of these things just don't pass the it makes uh, makes sense test. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. John Alexander. Hello. Where are you, please? Uh, good morning, Will. WTDY, Madison, Wisconsin. Yes, sir. I wish to place a question concerning the effect of some forms of energy put out by either the sun or possibly man via, for example, harp on the Earth's extremely hot interior magma. To make my question understandable, I need to succinctly point out that the sun now is in a sunspot minimum. However, it is again starting into its next sunspot increased portion That's of its 22-year cycle. And on right. January 6th, a very violent storm with all its energy blew full force. Uh, well, accidentally right straight towards Earth. Will, it blew out ATT satellite. Will, may have diverted the polar jet that said... Will, 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 uh, thank you, yes. Uh, doctor, we're approaching the top of the hour, and Will is exactly right, actually. One of our satellites... Uh, Telstar 401 was just killed by some kind of uh, uh, some kind of pulse and uh, some sort of energy pulse that slammed into the Earth, and that's a fact. Um, and he's also right about the sunspot uh, cycle. Can you devote one more hour? Uh, yeah, can you come up in the break just for a second? I, I shall do that. Okay. Uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Art Bell, somewhere in time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from January 24th, 1997.
Somewhere in Time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from January 24th, 1997. My guest is Dr. John Alexander, generally known as the father of non-lethal weapons. And we'll get back to him in a moment. And we're beginning to go all over the map, and that is what occurs when you open the lines, and that's just fine. That's what we're going to do. I've got a fax here from Major Ed Dames. Uh, relating to uh, uh, John Alexander, and I will read that in a moment. All right, the following is from Ed Dames, just came in. It says, Dear Art, although John is a very spooky guy, that's what he calls you, uh, uh, John, uh, he is certifiably trustable. You have my word of honor. It seems, if it seems, that he is skirting issues... It is only because he is plugged into very classified issues. He will not lie to you. Again, my word of honor. Compare martial arts. Once you use a certain technique, the enemy or potential enemy will be on guard for the unique technique that you used. So, certain text, uh, techniques must be kept under wraps. Um, and I guess that would be true. You said earlier there was about 5% of what you know that you could not talk about. If you were able to talk about that 5%, would I be surprised, shocked, horrified? What word would you use? No, I'd, I think you'd probably say, I knew that. I knew um, that. But the kinds of things you probably don't know are, you know, how good is it? And under what circumstances might they be used? And just how efficient... Uh, you know, what are the technical specifications and that, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. But I think in most cases you'd say, well, I knew that all along. <laughs> um, all right. Um, if our government... Here's another question for you. If our government uh, had something, some technology it could use in case we had a national crisis, anarchy of some sort, uh, and that information was classified... Uh, would you feel that people had a right to know that, or would you feel the government would rightfully keep that information to itself? <laughs> Boy, that, that's quite a hypothetical question. Yes, it is. Um, I, 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 let me answer it this way. I, I think the government certainly has the right to keep secrets, uh, and they do. Uh, having said that, some... Uh, this is going to get back to the educational issue, and I guess I'd be willing to take on that uh, teacher again. I, I think he's just hasn't gone out and looked at the graduate schools and who's doing uh, hard science there. But, but more directly, large conspiracies tend not to work. If you had, let's hypothetically say you had magic dust. Or, or whatever it is. Let's just just call it magic dust. Fine. Uh, that could have some mystical kinds of uh, capabilities. Yes. Um, how would you do that on a large scale? That means that you've got to have large numbers of people over long periods of time that would have access to the information, the planning, and, and all of those sorts of things. And it gets down to it just doesn't make sense. The other problem, and I come down on the side, actually, of being against most classification. 
and, and for this reason, I find out I find generally the people that we fool uh, are ourselves. Uh, let me give you an example. I was in one of these NATO meetings, and uh, uh, I'll not be too specific. One of our allies came up and laid something on the table, a technology, and said, "What do you think of this?" And I did know about it and couldn't talk to him about it at all. And I can tell you, our people absolutely thought that we're the only ones in the world who had figured that out. <laughs> and and the problem is, I'll give you another, uh, a totally different example, um, but uh, I was meeting with uh, General Abramson on a different topic. Uh, you know, he was the head of SDI at the time. Yes. And we laid some stuff out there, and he says, my God, can we do that? Can the Soviets do that? And we said, yeah, probably. And he said, I didn't know that. Uh, boy, <laughs> here was the head of SDI, and we're keeping secrets from him. Um, and it was it was not really intentional. It was just a matter of nobody thought to tell them these are the capabilities. So if if you had the system that you hypothesize, I think it's imperative that you actually have wide knowledge because if we have it, the chances are other people do as well. Uh, that's why I think with some of the more insidious systems that we haven't even got to yet, um, whether or not you choose to develop them, you'd better understand them so you can have countermeasures. Well, uh, let's get to them then. Insidious systems like what? Oh, well, I was talking there... Um, one of the sensitive systems we didn't talk about are the, the whole field of biology. Um, we have a conundrum uh, arising uh, therein. Uh, we have said we will not do biological warfare, um, and let's eliminate people. We're not, we're not going to talk about uh, viruses or anything that attack people, but let's talk about materiel. Um, there are bugs that will eat virtually anything. I used to be say, look at all the interesting things. I now say, I don't know anything that we can't have some naturally occurring organism that will destroy it. <laughs> now, on one hand, uh, we have a, a burgeoning biochemistry uh, initiative because trash is a global problem. So we're, we're looking at bugs that eat trash because they're good. On the other hand, we're saying well, we wouldn't use them for war. So you're actually developing the systems, and the only thing we're discussing is whether or not you use them and under what circumstance. Now, that's a classic where I say, if, well, uh, even if you don't want to develop it or use it, you'd better understand it because other people might use them. Well, you're exactly right. Give me an example of, you say there are bugs that would eat trash. Um, interesting, uh, but... Uh, uh, very uh, scary if you apply that technology to the battlefield. How how would you apply that technology uh, theore well, the theoretically to the battlefield? Sure, the simplest thing is to look at uh, uh, oil. I mean, oil is a major reserve. Petroleum products are needed by uh, all militaries to move. Oh, yes. Now, one thing you've got to remember, these... Uh, act quite slowly. We're talking about something that's going to take a few months. You're not going to go out and sprinkle bugs on the battlefield and have uh, all of the gasoline uh, get eaten up in a, in a short period of time. That's not the way it's going to work. But as a strategic system, 
if I wanted to degrade, uh, say, a country's entire oil supply, you could do that over, oh, you know, inoculate it and have this happen over a long period of time. <clears throat> Remember, these very same bugs that I'm describing are treatment of choice in oil slicks. We want them. They're, they're considered good there, considered bad if you talk about it in another context. How uh, likely is it that we would create a bug that would begin eating but wouldn't stop when we wanted it to? Uh, my uh, project manager on that used to call, call it the bug that ate Cleveland. Yeah. And we said, well, we'd give up Cleveland, but, uh, you know. <laughs> no, the reality is that Sorry, uh, Cleveland. organisms have natural selections and they die out. Uh, we have never encountered something that would continue to grow. This was one of the questions when they started looking at uh, biological t attacks on the coca plants. They said, uh, well, if it uh, eats coca and after that crop is gone, what happens if it mutates to uh, something else? Uh, and by and large, they just, uh, they have never encountered uh, a system that becomes uh, omnipotent. That's fascinating. All right, uh, first time caller line. You're on the air with Dr. John Alexander. Where are you, please? I am in Las Vegas, Nevada. Oh, Las Vegas. All right. How are you, sir? Fine. Uh, first time caller, and uh, I think I'm almost a fan of your show. Well, I'm glad. Um, for Dr. Alexander, I'm I'm actually the director of covert activities for Penn and Teller, and I I heard you mention <laughs> Penn Gillette earlier, and 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 I just wanted to. <clears throat> clarify exactly what that was about. Oh, uh, they were here uh, this past week. I went to see them Sunday. I actually gave them my car. I talked to Penn after the show. He, uh, he greets uh, everybody leaving or anybody who wants to talk to him. And so I asked if they would, uh, if they wanted to talk sometime. I would agree that it would be a very interesting uh, discussion. Uh, his response was that uh, he would have to check it with Randy first. Uh, yeah. uh, I assured him that Randy would know who I am. Uh huh. And of course, when I said, "Oh, you mean the amusing?" He said, "I would die for Randy." I said, well, oh, you were that guy. Yes, I heard about you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they're they're obviously very uh, very skeptical people, and and I just uh, wanted to, to find out what what that was about, and and make sure that there was. A, no hint of them even uh, recognizing the possibility of remote viewing. Or, or well, what I want to talk to them about is the incident that we discussed some time ago, and that would be my challenge to uh, Randy. Uh, and by the way, his challenge is nonsense. It's absolutely unwinnable uh, if you ever read the uh, fine print in it. But uh, I want to see them uh, where not the magician, but a naive subject, i.e. a person... Uh, that has no connection to them uh, whatsoever, uh, picks it up and has these uh, spectacular, uh, spontaneous events happen. Again, I want to emphasize, that happen sometimes. does not happen all the time. But I've seen it happen too frequently um, without magicians around and without people of any motivation to uh, be fraudulent and under close scrutiny. All right, I, I'm not sure the general public understands what the two of you are talking about. Number one, you're talking about the amazing Randy, I believe, and his yes. uh, open challenge, uh, right. which is, caller, what? Um, you got me. Why don't you explain it? Uh, Randy has been putting together, I don't know what it's up to. It started out as a $10,000 challenge to anybody who could produce a uh, psychic event. 
and I think they're now up in excess of half a million dollars with uh, backers that are pledged from uh, other uh, other groups that are supposedly give him uh, will give him the money. Uh, the problem is um, I have not seen the actual writing for some time, but he had sent he sent me a letter once that said if I just read his book I'd be saved. <laughs> and um, in that uh, he had a copy of. Uh, the, the challenge, and the challenge is written in such a, I mean, it, it in as, of itself is a magician's trick. I mean, it, it's no win. I see. All right. Uh, thank you, and thank you, caller. Uh, uh, so, in other words, you're, you're, you're saying that um, it's impossible to meet the, the, the criterion that he's set down. No, absolutely. He has people that do pre-screening. They own all of the data. They don't have to release the data. Um, I believe he's been seen at incidents before that he can't explain and he just leaves. Uh, I, I know there are people who want to take him up and the money is getting uh, high enough. I, I don't personally see that as a useful venture at all. Well, maybe there's a good, reliable psychic out there that's just waiting for it to hit a million dollars. Good luck. Yeah, right. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Dr. John Alexander. Hello. Yes, uh, uh, good morning, uh, General and uh, the doctor and uh, Art. Uh, it's Bob from Pocatello. Uh, yes, Bob. Uh, yes, sir. I, you know, it is the black research that was being conducted by the uh, uh, National Reconnaissance Office uh, under the National Security Agency, which is probably gets about as black as you can get. Uh, I mean, it follows up... Uh, on uh, some of the observations in the book, The Body Electric, uh, by Dr. Becker of the VA, and he expressed concern uh, uh, on secret naval experimentation following up on the principles of the Soviet, Soviet LIDA machine. Uh, that is, you know, I separate two RF carriers uh, at the whole body or brain cage resonance. Uh, you separate those two carriers by 10 to 15 hertz, uh, which, you know, the brain delta wave, you induce sleep. And he spoke of a whole uh, auditorium of people being put to sleep by relative low low power, and uh, he was concerned because there were also experimentation uh, uh, at sinus uh, heart rhythm uh, frequencies, uh, in which case they were able to get some uh, effect there. And, and audio uh, modulation, of course, the neurophone operates on these principles, uh, getting test subjects to hear voices in their heads. You know. <coughs> If a person doesn't say, there might not be a political uh, overview of this. And, of course, I, I understand that, that we we have to understand what a potential enemy might be able to do. But but looking at the possibilities of HARP, and I think and I think uh, you're uh, stonewalling this uh, person that called before the break and talking to Art during the break, is indicative there that, uh, I mean, this might be one of those classified areas, but... I think the general public has a right to know that the, you know that there are capabilities in this area and uh, and be uh, warned, don't you? All right. Uh, are you stonewalling, doctor? I, I uh, frankly, it broke up a bit. All right. Well, uh, I did hear. Let me answer at least uh, as I understood it, because I thought I heard him talk about the LIDA device. Uh, which was brought out uh, back in the bad old days of the uh, Cold War and, and looked at it and did look like it had uh, some uh, capabilities. Um, 
that was used in the Soviet Union as a, uh, I believe, part of a medical therapy, uh, actually. Uh, people were sitting in front of it, and they saw low-level uh, effects. Uh, I Frankly, I, I think that's Ross 80 uh, who is the one who did the uh, work on that, and I have not heard anything, any more on it in um, almost a decade. All right, um, and then he's, he suggested that you were stonewalling about HARP and that had you had told me the real stuff during the break. Oh, no, that's not... We discussed practical things like how long are we going to do this? And uh, uh, No, I, HARP is not uh, something that I have been uh, actively involved in at all. Uh, uh, Doctor, you, re you really are going to spoil all their expectations. Let's just tell them that you told me the whole scoop, and it's horrible. It's the worst thing you can possibly imagine. They can do anything they want with HARP, and that's what we really talked about during the break. Okay, and then you can use that whenever you want to really boost your ratings. You can tell them you're going to go public. <laughs> right. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. John Alexander. Hello. Hello. Going once. Oh, wait a minute. I see what I've done here. East of the Rockies, are you there now? Excuse me. I'm sorry about that. I had a wrong switch on. Go ahead. Yes, it's Pete Chicago. Yes, Pete. Uh, yeah, I enjoy your show there, Art. Very interesting. I, I tried to get through the other night when you had Wayne Green on. Yes. But I think I brokered a better source tonight. Uh, I used to work at a shipyard, and I worked on a naval barge called the Empress, or Empress 2. And, uh, uh, the words that come out since then, it was a, a simulator or actually a radiator. It uh, radiated electromagnetic poles. Um, now, I've never seen the thing operate it. Uh, the only feedback I've heard about it is something about killing fish in the Gulf of Mexico one time. I don't know what was about that. What I would like to ask Dr. Alexander is, uh, does this electromagnetic pulse... Um, as far as it harms uh, electronics or polarizes the conductive materials in it, um, is vacuum tube or analog electronics more susceptible than digital, CMOS, TTL? Or anything oh, like that? I can answer that. Yeah. Uh, the answer is no. Absolutely not. I mean, that's, you know, we wondered for a long time why the Soviet Union stayed with vacuum tube technology. And uh, the reason was that it could withstand uh, tremendous pulses. And as a matter of fact, if there was an EMP pulse uh, without really good hardening, about the only standing stuff that would still be working would be the vacuum tube stuff, right. uh, the old, uh, uh, the old stuff. And uh, and I wonder if they're beginning to stockpile some of the old stuff for exactly that reason. Maybe we'll go back and manufacture tubes again. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Dr. John Alexander. Hi. Yeah, good morning, Art. Good morning, sir. Got a question for you. I uh, heard the doctor talking about the uh, Council on Foreign Relations and all that stuff a while ago. Right. And I realize that that's not something you typically get into on your show, but a question that I've had for a number of years, I heard my grandfather talking about the CFR and all this stuff. This was back in the early 60s, and a question I have is, where does that stuff come from, that uh, ideology of a one-world government? All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. We are going to a break now, so the good doctor and I will secretly pass information back and forth <laughs> during the break about the CFR and then come back and talk about it. Doctor, stand by. We'll be right back to you. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. 
tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 24th, 1997. Somewhere in time, tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 24th, 1997. Good morning, everybody. I always figure give people what they want. Anyway, welcome back, and once again, uh, we'll be back to Dr. John Alexander, and I guess a further word or two about the Council on Foreign Relations. I really don't know what more can be said on the air, anyway. <laughs> Back now uh, to my guest, Dr. John Alexander. Uh, doctor, is there anything at all, additionally, that you want to say about the Council on Foreign Relations? They have, they have an intense, abiding curiosity about it. I guess um, in my approach on these things has always been, why don't you go ask? I find that, uh, again, the conspiracy theorists have these huge, uh, convoluted theories uh, put together uh, and know very little about them. If you just go ask them, they'll usually uh, tell you what you want to know. Uh, the other thing I suggest is that for people who think that these, uh, this is the way it's run, put yourself in charge of it. And I've done this with some of the UFO uh, stories and whatnot, and I've said, all right, how would I do it? How would I go about doing this massive cover-up, this, that, and the other thing? And normally it ends up with just an impossible task. All right. Uh, then that, that it's a good moment then to ask you about what is purported to be the biggest and best UFO story ever uh, involving a cover-up that has gone on for years and years and years, and according to you would be impossible to cover up, and that would be Roswell. Do you think something real happened at Roswell, real in terms of a UFO, or do you think that it is just sort of some sort of uh, modern uh, legend that has grown? Um, Roswell, to me, is a real outlier. Um, I have got to believe from a number of first-hand witnesses that certainly something happened. It strikes me as that the uh, mogul balloon uh, 
story does not answer the questions, and that um, the Air Force certainly did not serve itself well in the way it responded to uh, Congressman Schiff. Uh, yeah, you know, but then the transition to say what was it? I, I don't know. Uh, however, to su suggest that something really did happen. Or that an event really did occur, and uh, I agree with you with regard to the response to Schiff. I mean, a lot of records they simply admitted were destroyed, missing, destroyed, and well, uh, but they started out by stonewalling, yep, which yep. was stupid. And you know, I've read the letters you probably have too that this colonel wrote to a congressman, and frankly, they were unconscionable. Well, then that would suggest that such conspiracies could. Uh, 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 span many years. It, it tends, I think, to point more to incompetence. Incompetence, all right. Um, I've got a confidential source who would like me to ask you about something called Halon, or Halon, H-A-L-O-N. Does that mean anything to you? Uh, are you talking about a uh, fire retardant? Uh, Halon's a gas that's yes. used uh, for uh, putting out fires. Yes, uh-huh. Uh, and engines uh, uh, shutting uh, aircraft uh, engines uh, down. Right. Um, is there any use for uh, Helon uh, that we're not aware of? Uh, in other words, is there a... Let's see how to put this. Uh, a defensive uh, or offensive use for that gas that has been developed? Um, it depends on... Uh, I'm not sure what they're getting at. Um, one of the things that we did look at, this gets back to the first category, they were talking about non-lethal weapons. That's right. One of the things we were interested in is stopping uh, engines. Exactly. And certainly getting, uh, you can do it with uh, uh, acetone uh, or uh, halons or getting any kind of uh, something that basically gets in and stops the combustion uh, system from uh, operating. Flame out, and um, down she goes. Yeah, basically. Now, the problem is doing it in the air, uh, you can look at it, that's extremely difficult. Getting the concentrations necessary on the ground are more feasible. Um, having said that, uh, one of the problems is with most of the systems, uh, all they have to do is, you know, wait for the gas to dissipate, and you can turn it back on again. Mm -hmm. uh, there are things that can go in and just burn up the engine, which is uh, more effective uh, if you're not worried about what happens to the engine. Uh, some people worry about doing this in the air, and uh, the problem there is, is a density issue. Getting the concentrations necessary uh, at the right place at the right time is exceedingly difficult. Uh, missiles still do a better job. Yeah, then you're back to, you know, if you want to bring it down, hit the kill is... is as good as it gets. All right, first time caller line. Call the wild card lines, area 702-727-1295. All right, we're going to have to take that out. We don't allow uh, last names on the air, sir, so... Oh, just uh, Rod. Rod, okay, let's just use Rod from Oregon. Go ahead. Hi, how you doing? And it's a pleasure to uh, find that you're available in the western Oregon area. Glad, glad like to be there. To, uh, make a few statements and then ask one question from the doctor as soon as I can get my computer back to where it belongs. There we go. Uh, good morning, Art and Dr. Alexander. It's a great pleasure to find you here. And thank, thank you. you for taking my call for the first time. Okay, go ahead. Uh, let's 
see here. I'd like to make a few statements. Uh, Doc mentioned a few intriguing things about a device which will stop most electromechanical devices that rely on magnetism. And by the way, diesel engines don't really rely on an electrical ignition system. No, right. I think I think he mentioned that as a problem. Right. Uh, well, you know, they they fire by compression. We right. understand. He said that was a problem. So they couldn't stop the engine because correct. Or, That's or correct. a diesel engine because it was running on compression. That's correct. I see. Yes. On the subject of non-destructive weapons, isn't it intriguing the reports of abduction cases, you know, how they go, uh, stating the silver wand used to help subdue their perhaps uh, unwilling abductee. <laughs> it's just a thought, you know, from all the stories you read from anywhere from oh, uh, TV shows, tabloids, uh, books, and things like that. It, Kind of seems like if this is true, it would be a uh, non-destructive weapon. Well, there are, uh, Doctor. Are there not uh, the equivalent of silver wands? Certainly, that when they touch somebody, would disable uh, a biological uh, electrical system. Well, the wand. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm familiar with both fields, uh, but the wands that I'm familiar with that disrupt the electrical circle uh, circuitry do it fairly violently. And I know the people at uh, Air Taser uh, have a system that puts in an, an electrical shock, and they said they they stopped doing demonstrations because it looks like the floppy chicken, and it's kind of uh, uh, not not doesn't look as sophisticated as they would like it to. In other words, it seems too inhumane to demonstrate. Well, no, it just it really looks worse than it does. But what you're doing is. Uh, short-circuiting the neural system and so that uh, the body, uh, the individual has no control uh, over their body, so it tends to just jerk about. And, uh, mm. and they recover fine, it just looks bad. <laughs> looks bad. So one of the issues we haven't talked about in, in uh, non-lethal weapons has to do with the, what we call a CNN effect, and this is true with any system now that... Uh, you mean causing people to watch CNN for protracted periods of time will actually disable them? That's one way. Now, what I was really referring to is that any weapon you use, or any time you use force, uh, you've got to have it uh, or be prepared to see it on CNN. <laughs> I see. That, that really is true, yes. <laughs> Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Dr. John Alexander. Hello. Hello. Wildcard Line going once, going twice, gone. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. John Alexander. Hello. Hi, Art. How you doing? Fine. Hey, I called you a while back and told you I was having trouble with the web page. Yes. It was, it was operator error. I kept forgetting to hit the uh, return button. Well, uh, you see, it's the same with most aircraft crashes, uh, actually, uh, cockpit error. Uh, where are you calling from? Sir? I'm calling from Wyoming. Wyoming, all right. And... Uh, I called you before the last time and mentioned that I was an acquaintance of a gentleman that had claimed to have uh, been one of the first advisors into Vietnam. Do you remember that call many moons ago? Yes, sir. And uh, his claim was that uh, he had he was with the CIA in a military setting and that uh, he had seen at the Pentagon some uh, paperwork regarding Project Blue Book and he maintains that uh, contact had been made. And I was just wondering what the doctor had to say. That contact had been made actually many years ago, and that that was a pretty known 
fact amongst uh, the higher-ups in Washington, and I just wanted to see what uh, the doctor had to say. All right. Well, he really did comment already on uh, Blue Book, uh, its um, content, and then its conclusion and the disparity between apparent disparity between the two. Do you want to add anything to that, uh, doctor? Well, I'll do that, uh, and I'll give you a gratuitous uh, anecdote that someone will find interesting. Um, I, I don't believe uh, that the contact has been made or, or anything like this. Um, the, the comment on it that says that uh, none of this is real is that uh, uh, Tom Clancy is a pretty good friend of mine, and, I, and he's not a supporter of these unusual areas, so I ping him from time to time. And uh, we were, you know, he owns the Baltimore Orioles, so we were there uh, watching a game and uh, chit-chatting about these things. And I said, well, uh, you know, uh, what about UFOs? He says, well, it's simple or not. And he says, uh, uh, we asked specifically about Roswell and if, he, if we had it. And he says, no. He says, well, how can you be so sure? He says, somebody would have told me. <laughs> uh, and that's probably a fairly accurate statement. It really is. Uh, west of the Rockies, uh, uh, although there is then the Goldwater uh, conversation uh, w w with a general that uh, that was very interesting, and I've got uh, Barry Goldwater on tape, uh, who made inquiries about Roswell mm -hmm. and uh, was shut down very quickly. I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but I actually have that on audio tape. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. John Alexander. Yes, this is Pete Portland. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello. Uh, before I ask the doctor my particular question, I don't know if you talked to him of anything about the Philadelphia experiment, Art. No. Okay. Uh, doctor, in Tom Clancy's, one of his recent books, uh, Dead of Honor, he describes a weapon used by our boys as being a three million candlewatt searchlight that shined into the eyes right. of uh, Japanese pilots and knocks them out straight through their right. optic nerve. Uh, I was wondering if maybe it might really be something more like uh, a pulsing light that does brainwave entrainment, sort of an artificial epileptic fit at a distance. Could you comment on that? Interesting, yes. Yeah. Uh, Tom actually got that from me. Um, and as a matter of fact, the first raid in Dead of Honor is a total non-lethal uh, uh, weapons uh, thing that uh, we had decided. I feed him stuff like that. Um, and uh, what he actually, in using the light as he did there, that was at the uh, an airport in Japan, and, and it was showing that uh, the fallibility of non-lethal weapons, uh, because the plane crashes, in other words, they blinded the pilot and he couldn't land. Uh, as far as pulsing, um, the problem with that is that you can induce epileptic seizures, uh, but predominantly in people who are predisposed. Uh, it's one of the problems you've had in discos and whatnot where you have strobe lights. Uh, if you find people who've had EEGs and you see delta waves uh, that are embedded in there, um, uh, you, you can trigger them, but it's more, it gets back to the problem of using any system against people. Uh, they, they will work on one person and not on the next. And presumably, uh, if that was a weapon of choice, you wouldn't have pilots subject to epileptic uh, seizure. No, you don't want. And the problem with epilepsy is once triggered, is, is this likely to continue? Uh, you have later episodes. I see. Uh, first, yeah, I don't want a pilot. I want to fight with a pilot that's epileptic. Uh, two of us. Uh, first time caller line. You're on the air with Dr. Alexander. Hello. Yeah. Hi. I've I've got a. 
comment and the question. All right, where are you? I, I am in Santa Rosa. All right. The uh, the comment I have is you talked earlier about uh, it was a uh, non-nuclear blast, but the biggest blast short of something nuclear. Yes. And the thing I wanted to mention was I believe that is called a, a, a fuel-air explosive. Didn't you hear me mention that? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I must have been taking a bathroom break. I see. Uh, well, uh, during your bathroom break, I mentioned that, and uh, uh, I think the doctor's answer was that uh, that may well or may well not be, but uh, nevertheless, they did explode something over there that, uh, short of a nuclear weapon, was a gigantic bang. Yeah, my, my understanding was it releases a fuel spray, and then what happens is it's ignited, yes, and right. it actually creates a megaton explosion. Mm-hmm. Is that roughly uh, accurate, Doctor? Well, I wouldn't give it any specific. You can, um, you know, control. It depends on the amount of uh, fuel that's put in. It's called fuel error because it's a, a double uh, hit where you send in the, uh, uh, you put in the fuel, have it disperse, and then ignite, and uh, uh, you get tremendous blast overpressure. Uh, one of the areas that it was looked for, looked at initially, uh, was as a uh, for clearing minefields uh, because ah, it caused a, a uniform overpressure. blast overpressure. That's right, and it would just set them off. Right. Uh, wild card line, you're on the air with Dr. Alexander. Where are you, please? It's Ethan in San Diego. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was wondering about the um, the doctor. Think about the people. What is it, the Nazis basically disappearing over to Latin America right after World War II as far as the Soviet Union shipping them over there for basically mind control experiments with drugs and the like they did with the uh, Jews and the rest of the concentration camps in 1945 to 62, 300,000 people in Colombia were murdered at the rate of 48 people a day for 17 years and the like, and the counterculture, anti-establishment drug culture didn't start up during the Korean War with the beatniks and the hippies with a harder drugs like LSD. And All right, you're, what you're, the center of your question is uh, the Nazis did work, I believe, on mind control. Many of them did go uh, to South America after the war. Uh, did that technology continue? Uh, are we using it today, mind control? Uh, is that to me? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Uh, I didn't know if you're still recapping her. Um, I don't believe so. And again, we we addressed this uh, one earlier. Uh, I just think that uh, the experience that they had. Well, I can tell you, for instance, that uh, when uh, MK Ultra uh, went down, remember uh, all of those experiments uh, were terminated. Um, it, it happened that. It was not an easy blow, and I know of people who actually lost projects totally unrelated to that one, and the only sin they had was to be kept in the same safe drawer. Mm -hmm. uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I've been I've talked to very senior people in the agency who just you know say absolutely under no way uh, are they going to uh, uh, risk uh, the wrath. Um, the problem is that if if I think if Congress ever caught you uh, dabbling with those things uh, without permission, um, they would hurt your budget. I mean, that's why I say it's a golden rule issue. 
uh, and sooner or later they would get caught, and that's just not worth the risk. All right. Doctor, uh, we're at the end of the show here, and I want to thank you uh, for being my guest this morning, and we will have you back on another occasion. You're a fascinating guy, and uh, say hello for me to everybody at the... Uh, uh, Institute? Uh, yes, mm -hmm, at the Institute. And, uh, and the council. Okay. <laughs> Take care. Dr. John Alexander, a pleasure. That is Dr. John Alexander from Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> God, I love doing that. <laughs> That's it for this week, folks. Uh, Dreamland Sunday night, dream interpretation on Dreamland. Thank you all very much. Monday night, Tuesday morning, back with this program from the high desert. Good night, world. Good night, world.